Joining us now for the uh, their first interviews since this entire story began are E.J. Sandusky and his wife, Heather. Uh, E.J. is an adopted son of Jerry and Dottie Sandusky, has lived with them since birth, and uh, they both join us now. Uh, guys, welcome to the podcast. Hi, John. Thanks. Hi, thank you. I'm thrilled to finally get a chance to speak to both of you on the record. I want to ask you both separately, and I'm actually going to start with Heather, since, Heather, you you uh, were the person who contacted me uh, uh, about a month or so ago now after uh, both of you had had an opportunity to listen to the entirety of the podcast uh, with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, I was thrilled that you contacted me. I was a little bit surprised since I've been – um, more than a little critical of the adopted children for not being willing to speak out previously. Uh, so what facilitated, and I've, I've even said that uh, the spouses of the adopted children have been uh, at times problematic in, in this regard. Uh, what facilitated you reaching out to me for the possibility of finally going on the record about uh, this entire story? You know, I think that EJ and I have had, you know, long a long time to to think about how we wanted to sort of get our version out there and what would be the most appropriate platform for him to speak his truth and tell his story. And after our conversations and seeing all of the work that you have done and the family being just really appreciative of your hard work and dedication to getting the truth out, I just asked EJ, would you ever be open to this you know is this sort of the right time and he said yeah you know what I think I might be and I just I said okay I'm going to reach out and I'm going to open up the door of opportunity and see where this leads us and one thing led to another and here we are today so we're we're excited we're we're excited I think that's the best way to we're, we're sort of we're, we're happy that we're at this place we're comfortable now to get our truth or for EJ to get his truth out. That's, that's really what I'm most interested in is having him speak his truth. And, and I'm going to introduce more formally EJ in a second, but I, I do think it's important that people understand that in this situation, you are not just, you know, a spouse of, of an adopted child who may not, you know, have that much intimate knowledge of the Sandusky family or Jerry Sandusky in your case, that is far from the truth. Give us the synopsis of your relationship with the family in general, but Jerry Sandusky in particular. So I grew up in State College. I I was born in Harrisburg and grew up in State College until I was in high school and grew up as a as Kara Sandusky's best friend going to elementary school with her. Kara, for, for people who don't know, Kara is another one of the adopted children. Mm-hmm. And going to church with her, Bible study with her, sort of just growing up in that same community, spending lots of time over at her house as a young child, and really became sort of close friends with her and spent some time in the family home and just always was very closely acquainted with the family, admired them, and sort of always looked up to the family, knowing how close they were and 
seeing them as always having a close knitted bond together as a family unit. And then in high school, I moved away and unfortunately didn't have the opportunity to stay in touch with Kara throughout the years. And Facebook sort of brought us back together, gosh, in the early 2000s. And then through one step over the other, we sort of reconnected, and then I reconnected with everybody through the family. But I've known the family, I would say, for most of my life, if not all of my life. And I've known Dottie, and I know Jerry very well. And just really familiar with their family unit and really familiar with all of the siblings. So as an adult, was was sort of reintroduced to them because there was a gap of time where we, you know, we weren't together or didn't see each other. So it was a reuniting after several years. And, and can you give us a sense of your relationship with Jerry in particular? You know, when I was young and growing up and spending time with Kara in their family home, I didn't see him very much. He was really never in the house. It was it was the kids and and Dottie and Kara and myself and kids were always in and out of the house, playing in the backyard, sort of playing in the front yard. He really wasn't there that much. I just knew that he was always on campus. He was a football coach. I knew that I would see him every Sunday at church, but that was really the extent of my my one-on-one or really any interaction with him as a young child in the home because he was just really unavailable. And then I'm assuming, by the way, I, I, maybe I shouldn't assume this, that that your relationship with Kara would ends up, ends up, I'm assuming, at least indirectly uh, facilitating your relationship with EJ uh, turning into marriage, correct? <laughs> yeah, it, sort of, yeah. I mean, EJ and I reconnected through Kara on Facebook and then over some... You know, Facebook is this magical reconnector, right, for individuals. Um, but yeah, that's 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 a safe assumption to make. Yes. And um, and I, I'm guessing then, as an adult, you had more interaction with Jerry Sandusky uh, as as the wife of of EJ, correct? Yeah, I've had some interaction with him certainly before we were married, and up until EJ and I were married after the trial, but mm-hmm. up until the trial, certainly I spent some time with Jerry in the home and got to know him again as an adult in a different way, of course, because yeah. I didn't spend a ton of time around him as a, as a young child, but certainly, again, uh, spending time with him in the home as an adult, yeah, certainly spent some time with him. All right, so let's go to, to EJ. EJ, uh, y- you um, were, were adopted by the Sanduskis, Jerry and Dottie Sandusky, as a baby, so for all intents and purposes, they're the the only parents that that you know. Um, before we get into the issues related to this case, can you give us an, an, a synopsis and an assessment of of your childhood years and what it was like uh, being the adopted son of Jerry and Dottie Sandusky? <laughs> well, um, so I was actually the first adopted child. Uh, that my parents adopted, you know, that, that they had. Um, I was adopted right from birth, um, and they are my parents. They're the only parents I know. I, I've never tried to seek out my biological family or anything of that nature. Um, and I look at my childhood as a normal childhood, a very idyllic one growing up in State College. Uh, I started, you know, one of my some of my very earliest memories as a child uh, was you know 
being with my mom and dad, playing, you know, playing catch in the backyard, going to Penn State football games. I started going to Penn State football games in, um, when I was around six years old, so you're looking around like 1975, um, going back to when the stadium wasn't bowled in. It was still the, the U-shaped uh, stadium with the temporary bleachers in the, in the south end zone and, and the track around the field. And, and so those, I remember going to games back at that time, six, seven, eight years old, I I never missed a home game at Penn State um, until after I was done playing at Penn State, and I was then 23 and a graduate assistant football coach at that time. Um, and so I I mean, growing up in our in our house is that uh, we were um, we worked hard, we had fun, we had always we had interaction always as a family. We would. We were, I don't want to say required, but it was just expected of us. We got up and had breakfast every morning as a family um, before my father went off to work. So we all got up and we'd have breakfast uh, together, and my father would go off to work, and then we'd get ready to go go to school. And we had dinner together as a family. Uh, so we usually typically would have dinner around 6.30-ish, um, between 6.37 when my father would get home in the fall from practice and we would have dinner uh, together as a family. Um, you know, and everyone used to come and we looked like the Waltons because we had a, a long table with bench seating on both sides. And so, you know, that's, you know, and I look at, I remember those things as so fond, so fondly because we would, oftentimes just hang around the dinner table and talk about various things or, you know, uh, you know, my father would like whistle, hum, like college fight songs. And we, you know, we'd guess which ones they were and stuff like that. And, and, and I, we, we had a very active family. We would play kickball games in the backyard with neighborhood kids. And we, you know, uh, my father was making sure that we would, exercising. I remember one time he came home and it was a cold winter day and none of us really were outside exercising. We had us go up and go up and down the uh, the, the road where we grew up to get get the blood flowing and exercise a little bit um, that day. And, and so it's um, it, it, it was we we wanted for nothing. We didn't live a lavish lifestyle. We very lived a very humble lifestyle. Uh, my father worked. My mother did not work. She stayed in the home to to raise the children, and um, my mother didn't work outside the home until after all of us were in, you know, until my youngest brother uh, John was in um, um, in elementary school, and she would work during as like a hostess during midday lunch at a restaurant for midday rush. So that was that was you know much, much later. I was probably at that point in time, I was, you know, in, in high school. Um, and so I, you know, I, I, you know, we had just great memories, you know, you know, going to, going to football games, going to bowl games, you know, over, you know, it was a funny thing. We'd have, we put our Christmas tree up early in December on Christmas day. We would get up, we'd celebrate, we'd do our Christmas thing, open gifts and things of that nature. And then around lunchtime, we would take down the Christmas tree. <laughs> so we would take down the Christmas tree after we ate, ate lunch because on 
December 26th. At that time, the Penn State football team, you know, we would be traveling to go to the bowl game that was played on January 1st. And so early Jan- on December 26th, we had to be at, you know, the, the, the Lash, well, it wasn't, I don't think it was called Lash Football Complex at that point in time, but that's where we met to, to hop on a bus to drive to Harrisburg to go to the bowl game each year. Um, and so if it was the January 1st bowl game, we left on December 6th. Um, if it was an earlier bowl game, then we left before Christmas. I know we would do Christmas at where the bowl game, but we'd take our tree down, you know, before we left because, you know, it, we, we didn't want to come home to a, a tree with no pine needles because it had dried out. Um, and so um, it was, for my life, it was all centered around sports. I, um, in state college, you didn't play football until junior high because there was no youth football. So you know, I played soccer, you know, uh, baseball, basketball, wrestling. Um, and and so I was always doing something because I enjoyed it. And then even if I wasn't doing organized sports, we lived in a great community with some wonderful people, um, with neighbors that I had uh, friends that were all my age, and we played football, baseball, wiffle ball, mm-hmm. not basketball, nonstop, you know, all completely year-round, um, sled riding. And then another favorite memory of mine is that we had groups of families uh, in the neighborhood. We would go around to go to families and we did um, Christmas caroling and and then had hot chocolate and, and cookies wherever we ended up, you know, after Christmas caroling. I mean, it, it really was, you know, the a great neighborhood to grow up in, very Norman Rockwell-ish type, you know, uh, and, childhood. And on top of this, E.J., I mean, talk about this this dream scenario. You're you're adopted as a baby, and you end up uh, playing football rather prominently at Penn State. Not just uh, you know for Joe Paterno, but for for your your dad, who uh, is a very prominent coach. Uh, you know, this is a, around the, the time period where. Penn State had, had won uh, two national championships, and your dad was was nationally recognized as being the reason for the the second one, with his being the defensive coordinator on the nineteen eighty six team. I mean, this is this is dream stuff, right? This, yeah. I mean, this is for for even for a non adopted kid, but for an adopted yeah. kid, this is yeah. it doesn't get any yeah. better than this, right? Well. And again, I didn't go through life thinking. I, I always knew I was adopted. My parents, I think, did a smart thing by letting all of us kids know that we were adopted, that they weren't able to have children of their own, and that um, but they were blessed to be have the opportunity to adopt us. Um, and I, you know, I went to the first national championship game in '82 when I was in seventh grade. You know, and and then I played all my sports my senior year of high school when Penn State played in the Fiesta Bowl against Miami. Um, I, you know, I, I actually came out to that game late because I had my, it was my senior basketball season, and I had a Christmas tournament, so I came out. My parents made arrangements for me to come out late. I mean, it was just it, – it was what we did, and so it was such a great experience, you know, to, to be a part of it. Um, but, like – you know, I didn't. I never really went to Penn State. I never went to Penn State practices. I never um, was on the sidelines before a game. Before I was a, a player, um, you know, it that that 
wasn't what you know. I just didn't do it, but it, I was always involved in so many things. But it, yeah, it was it was a it was a great enjoyable life. I didn't feel like I was entitled. This was just what my family was like. You know, mm-hmm. it was just you know I I grew up with the other coaches' kids. You know, I played football with with Jay. You know, Jay was one year older than I was, um, and so you know we. You know, Dick Anderson's son Jeff and I were good friends, and uh, we played. We played uh, at, at, State, at Penn State together. We didn't, um, and so it was. You know, it was. Uh, you know, it was just that was our life. It was. I didn't. It was. It was <laughs> so, I, I can't. I. I will never say that I had a bad life. I had. I had a great childhood, and and can't. I, there was nothing I would do to, to change it. Um, other than, you know, if I could have been a better athlete to go further than, than playing in college. But, you know, I, I was a walk-on. I was a walk-on at Penn State. Um, you know, I, I, I went to State College High School. I ended up walking on to the football team. I knew that I may never play at Penn State. I knew that I was battling an uphill – doing it was an uphill climb for me to, to ever get an opportunity to actually play uh, – college football and I just through you know a lot of hard work good fortune other players had gotten hurt had, had transferred or whatever and you know I was ended up uh, being the starter my, my last year um, in college I, which was the 92 was on the last independent team um, so the, the fall of 92 I was actually in in grad school, I graduated the spring of '92, and then I was in grad school for my last football season. Yeah, by the way, you're. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Heather. Go ahead. And I, I just, I think that what he just described is how I think I, I grew up in state college. I think how tell everyone grew up in state college. I think most of the local kids in state college, if they had a track to go to college and to go to school after high school, more than not, kids were going to Penn State. My mother was a Penn State graduate. I mean, it was just sort of the track that you were on and outside of, you know, to me it was Mr. Sandusky. And so outside of Mr. Sandusky being a coach on the Penn State football team, he was just Mr. Sandusky, and the kids were just the Sandusky family. So I didn't really see them as being an unusual. And the Paternos were just the Paterno kids, and that was just Mr. and Mrs. Paterno. And, you know, outside of, like, it was sort of, kind of lived in a bubble, right? And then you sort of go outside and you realize, especially when I moved away and during high school, I remember moving to New Jersey after moving to Pennsylvania. And the first Saturday of high school, I said to my dad, well, I don't really know, like, what do people do on Saturdays? <laughs> he sort of laughed and said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, they, there's no like football and it's just like that was like what we did every saturday if you right. weren't going to the game you were going to a tailgate and if you weren't going to a tailgate you were going to someone's house and if you didn't know somebody playing you knew somebody who, who knew somebody was playing it was just kind of our life and yeah. um the, the other thing i would say is that like you know all so many of our friends their parents worked yeah. at the university so yeah. my father just happened to be in the department of athletics where my other friends families were in the Department of English, or the right. department, the business department, or they, they were our administrators at the at the school. It wasn't like we were special because our mm-hmm. father was in uh, a football coach. Now, obviously, it's a little bit more recognition in the, as a football coach than an English professor, you know. But that's that's the way it is. But it wasn't like, you know, that it wasn't like a 
big thing, you know, because so many of the kids, mm-hmm. you know, friends that we grew up with, all their, so many of the other families were also working at Penn State. So mm-hmm. it, it was just kind of now, the way it was. Now, EJ, when you described your, your football career from walk-on to eventual starter through hard work and then going into coaching, which you would do after uh, Penn State, it, it obviously I'm sure you've thought about that that is almost the exact same track that your your father took. Uh, you know, he, you know, apparently, you know, from everything I've been told, uh, he, he didn't have all the talent in the world, but he worked incredibly hard and, you know, was was thrilled to, to eventually get his chance to be a, a prominent player at Penn State. And then he goes in, into coaching. I, I can't imagine that that was coincidental, even though you're, you're adopted, right. that you take the same track as your dad, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he majored in, he was a physical education major. Um, uh, you know, he, he would tell you himself is that he was not necessarily the, the brightest student in high school. Um, he was kind of like Penn State was really interested in, in, a, in a teammate of his in, at Washington High School in uh, Washington, Pennsylvania there. And, and he was kind of like the kid that came along, so to speak, uh, so the, the, the starter would have a, uh, a buddy on the team. Um, I, you know, I, there were some Division uh, I, AA, Division II schools that talked to me, recruit about, you know, playing football there. Um, and I just, I, I, you know, I considered it. But, I mean, I, I, when your, your parent works at Penn State, you get 75% off tuition. So that's kind of tough to compete with in terms of cost so um you know i and so i of course i thought that maybe i might want to go into uh coaching Uh, that was a possibility um but i didn't want to i wasn't really into like being a high school teacher or physical you know into physical education things of that nature so i i was a business major um okay and I, and I remember taking a finance, a finance test, and I was not doing well on it. And I'm like, what am I doing? You know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm probably going into, it's probably going to go into coaching, and you know, because that's probably what I can't, I couldn't see myself not doing, um, not being part of football and and being a part. And, of, but but I'm, I guess what I'm getting yeah. at though is I'm I'm guessing uh, that this can't all be coincidence that your affection for your father has to be at least somewhat of a motor motivator for you to go down oh. this path. Yeah. Well, I, I remember when I was young, my father would bring film home to work. He worked at home at that time. Coaches didn't necessarily spend long long hours at the office. They could they actually would, my father would come home for dinner had dinner and then he would go back and he would he would work in his office um, and watch film. So I from a very young age I started watching game film with him, probably as somewhat to be spend time with my father. And so I would, you know, hear and just naturally ask questions of what they were doing. And I, I remember watching, you know, what the you know, on the eight sixteen millimeter film, game film and stuff like that and and, and to spend time with him, and and I and I also went on recruiting trips, you know, as a special treat, you know, on Fridays when I was in elementary school, junior high, my father sometimes would have a recruiting trip to Western Pennsylvania to uh, scout a, a senior in high school, and before a Penn State game, so he would drive out. I would as a special treat, and my younger brothers, I think I'm pretty sure did it as well. Uh, um, I I would get out of school early. You know, I would be in the car with my father. We'd drive out to Western Pennsylvania. We'd 
have dinner someplace, and then we would go to a high school game for like maybe a first half, maybe go to another game for the second half to see two 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 players play, and then we would I would drive we would drive back home to State College from Western Pennsylvania, and so that was like kind of a special treat to like spend you know maybe get ice cream after the game you know um, and and drive back home. Um, and yeah. were and was it on those trips that that, that Jerry would sexually abuse you? Uh, no, yeah, that obviously is, you know, the answer never happened. Um, never, uh, ever felt uncomfortable with my father growing up or ever had anything like that even remotely happening to me. Yeah, obviously I, I knew yeah, the answer to that, but, um, <laughs> but, um, I am curious, did he, did he put his hand on your knee while driving? <laughs> he may have. I, I don't remember, but, you know, I, I think, you know, like when we talked before, one of my father um, is, has always been driven to help others. And to and one of the things he had uh, was he wanted people to know, you know, he was trying, obviously the second mile was trying to help young, young boys that were in bad situations um, to give them a chance to be successful in life. And one of the things that uh, a common denominator in all these boys' lives is that they came from broken homes. And that was probably in, some, in the second mile, mile literature early in the process, you know, that these boys that came from broken homes, obviously meaning in, like, single-parent families and things of that nature. And he always wanted to make sure that they, that they had a, an adult, a, a male adult figure that they knew cared about them. And one of the things to, you know, to show that he cared about them and, and care about them, their lives was basically to put his hand on their shoulder or, and I'm sure, you know, to pat them on the knee. And obviously, I know in, in, in 2021, people were like, why would you put your hand, hand on the knee? Because we look at it as only as a, as a sexualized Thing. And that's not what it was. That that was not a um, it, it, that basically that was a non-sexual sign to hey, like you're a valued person. You know, obviously it would look a whole lot weirder if you're holding hands, but that's the way it was looked at. Putting a hand on the knee wasn't and it wasn't looked as upon as a sexual advancement. Mm-hmm. Would you would you um, describe your dad though as a as a very touchy feely uh, kind of person and 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 someone that maybe uh, has different uh, concepts of boundaries than what is is thought of as acceptable today? I mean, is, do you agree with that assessment of your dad? Um, I in in looking at it in, in the, again in the twenty first century, I can see how and how. We're definitely more hypersensitive sensitive to, to those things. I can see how people see that. But growing up and, and, and even early, you know, when I was in high school or in college and, and watching him interact, never did, it, did, what, did any of those things come across as being sexual or touchy-feely. It came across as like sh- a, a show, a sign of um, not affection but of encouragement and and uh, um, I, I'm not really sure you know, a better word right now. I'm drawing a blank. No. But basically, it's like a, a sign, like, "Hey, you you are cared for, mm-hmm. and that you uh, that you matter, and that even though 
you know, you may not have the, be in the idyllic situation of a mother-father home. You're supported. You're supported and you're cared for and that you can be successful just even though you don't come from the perfect background, you know, the perfect home um, from that standpoint. And it, it was never looked upon as being sexual or sexualized or anything of that nature. Now, obviously, when you, you grow up, there, you know, like what we talked before, I, I wish that someone said, look, these things can be misconstrued and, and, and have, are the wrong perceptions that some people can have of these things. But like I said, he wanted to make sure that the kids know that he cared, which is why he would sign letters like love. It wasn't like a romantic love. It was a love of a, like of a supportive father. You know, the, hey, understand, you are loved. You know, you you know whether you know a, a religious love or a familial, you know, parental type love. That's the love that he would say when he would sign letters. Did you get letters like those that ended up being used against him at oh, uh, yeah. his trial? Yeah, my 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 father always signed birthday cards and and letters to me as love mom and dad, love dad. You know, uh, you know. Always that you know. It's basically, you know, it's like, you know, we're so proud of you. Far and so long in the process. But he's asking, was it ever used against you in the trial? No. Yeah. No. What, but, what, I'm, what I'm saying is, I mean, there was a lot made of of specifically letters that uh, he wrote to victim number four right. um, that were seen as love letters, and yeah. um, I, I'm I'm assuming that you probably got letters that were similar. Absolutely. And yep. and I'm sure that your your adopted siblings and and maybe some of the, the many foster kids that came through your house Absolutely. also got those. Absolutely, one hundred percent. By by the way, we, we never really talk much about the foster kids, but and I think it's one of the many elements of this story that there are so many. It's hard to give attention to all of them, but but um, since you know you were living in the home, uh, you know, it, 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 can you give us a sense of what that meant to have? Not just adopted kids, you're one of six, but but foster kids as well constantly coming through the house. Well, it wasn't like a revolving door. I mean, it, it wasn't like, you know, one in, one out type thing. Um, but my parents also did, uh, there was, used to be a, pro, a program called Fresh Air Kids where they would, kids from the city of New York would come out to state college for two weeks and spend, live with us for two weeks. So they're, uh, and my parents kept in touch with a few of them um, over the years, and, and it, they, they, it was a, called like a fresh air program. Um, but my parents had, uh, you know, I one of my adopted brothers, my older older brother, who was adopted, you know, after I was adopted. I was eight year old, years old when he came to live with us, my brother Ray. Um, and, and, and Ray's brother, when Ray's brother came to live with, with, with us, his, uh, he he was a senior in high school. So he was basically, my parents never adopted him because basically he was over 18 and it was never it was never really brought up. But Ray, I think, was adopted when he was 16. Um, but, like, I came home from school, I'm eight years old, and I'm like, hey, instant older brother, you know. And mm. so, um, the, I mean, the, the, he's the, there were other fresh uh foster children but most of them I, I don't really remember um there was one named chris 
he he was there for a while, but then went and uh, went back to his parents um, or mother. Um, but uh, I don't really remember many. Well, others. the the point I'm making about this yeah. is is one two things. One, uh, the the de- the de- the dedication that your parents had towards uh, caring for for kids that were in bad situations. Yeah. That's number yeah. one. But number two, the number of people that if this story was true and right. your father was really a pedophile, mm-hmm. um, where he would have had incredibly easy and prime targets who yeah. who never even made any kind of an allegation even, Correct. despite yeah. the fact that there was millions of dollars in it for them. Right. I, mean, I mean, I think that's one of the more amazing elements of this whole story sure. is that somehow other than Matt, and we're going to get to Matt, uh, obviously for in a big way, because Matt, but, yeah. but it's, it is so important to understand the significance of Matt flipping on your father, because if he doesn't, you not only have six adopted kids, but you have all these foster kids who have yeah. come through the house, they're by, it's by far the greatest target of opportunity if you're a pedophile Correct. that you could possibly have, and none of them make an allegation. And uh, that is, that's impossible if Jerry is a, a, a serial pedophile, correct? Correct. Right. Correct. Right. I, I mean, and, and by the way, I cannot emphasize enough, because of the unique circumstances of this situation, they have all have enormous incentives to make a claim even if it's not true. And right. and, and and so I've always thought, <clears throat> wow, what incredible loyalty by the part of these foster kids or the kids who come through for a short period of time where they easily could have made millions from this. Yeah. And, and, and I think a, a lot of the uh, alleged accusers, I think probably, and you and I talked a little bit about this before, are even to this day racked with guilt that they either were convinced by either family or lawyers to move to make these alleged claims because they actually felt so guilty doing it because they know what great influence my father was in their life or helped them become who the type of person that they ultimately ended up becoming. And it wasn't until that they maybe were influenced um, by outsiders to or other people or situations in their life that they then decided to go ahead and make accusations, i.e., as we talked about, Alan Myers. That, that, that basically, I think he was in a complete world of being completely racked with guilt with the, the whole situation for him is, com- I think he, and that's why he's, his life is the way he is where he basically has become like a hermit because he just, he feels completely guilty that he was a part of this. You're referring that's to my opinion. That's my opinion. Well, we're, we're, you're talking about Alan Myers, yeah. the, the boy who was in the shower in the Mike McQuarrie episode, so-called victim number two. Uh, you know him exceedingly well. You told me previously better than even know Matt Sandusky. Uh, and I, and I want to get to that, but I, I like to go in a linear fashion here. And, and so I, now that we've yeah. kind of set the table uh, for, for your background and all this, let's get to 
the nitty gritty of, of the story itself. And and so I, I my first question for you, EJ, is um, when was the first time to your recollection that you were even aware of any sort of allegation of sexual abuse against your father? Were you, for instance, were you aware of the 1998 investigation at all? I think I was probably, no, not when it was going on. I think probably my first recollection of any of these, of this was when, you know, our, our parents may have said, yeah, there's this individual making these claims and there's a grand jury, um, investigating these things. Um, I, I think that was the, but not really, I mean, I, at that point in time, I was, in my coaching career, I was out of the, obviously out of the home, had a starting a young family of my own, uh, so I didn't, you know, really com- completely, you know, parent, my parents obviously said, you know, it's something that, you know, that's going on. If you hear anything about it, don't worry about it. It's a grand jury thing, and you know, that didn't do anything wrong. Nothing. You have to be worried about it. So this and would so have been this, this would have been around two thousand nine, I'm guessing. Um, and they're referring to Aaron Fisher's claim. Mm-hmm. Uh, no yeah. one's ever heard about Mike McQuarrie at this point. Correct. And And in your father's view, this is all under control. There's just this one second-mile kid named Aaron Fisher who's claiming I did these things, but obviously, I'm, I'm guessing and paraphrasing, you, know, yeah. you all know I didn't do this. Uh, don't worry. Is it is it is the sentence is the is the tone? Don't worry about it. We just want, we're just giving you the heads up that this exists. Yeah. Yes. And, yep. and, and especially when you you know you had the first two grand juries that didn't indict him. You know that that was basically you know that there's nothing to this, and that that's basically what they're you know don't there's nothing that you can do about it. So don't worry about it and. You know, but just a, you know, a heads up that this is going on. What did you make of that at the time? I mean, were you angry at Aaron? Did you know Aaron at all? Or what? I, I did not really know Aaron. I probably heard his name at various times, but I didn't really know Aaron. Obviously, um, I, I was whoever it was making these allegations. I, I basically definitely thought it was probably a, a miss you know, someone misrepresenting what actually may have occurred or people influencing these things. But at the same time, you know, just like when you're like any high school teacher or any anyone who works with young people, that that you are putting yourself out there to possibly have to deal with someone making a false accusation. Were you worried at all uh, that knowing your dad and, and knowing – how he is physically and, and with, with regard to boundaries and his, his, his standards of affection, as well as the fact that I'm, I'm sure you, uh, you know, were aware that he's a very trusting and at times naive person. Mm-hmm. At, at that point, had it occurred to you yet that this could be trouble or did you just, uh, not that he was guilty, but that this could be could end up yeah. being in something that was tr- that was going to sure. cause trouble. Uh, yeah. What, did did that occur to you at the time? Yeah, probably. I, I mean, it, obviously, the second mile was something that he um, had, you know, 
been a huge part of our life. You know, I remember stuffing envelopes one for one of the first fundraisers that Penn State did and, and helping golfers at the top trees for the golf outing. And, you know, so it was part of us helping out during the, the beginning of the second mile when they broke ground for the original house out by the airport and everything. And, and, and so, you know, the second mile was a part of our growing up as well. You know, the first group home that they, that they built and everything. And, um, and so obviously when, when, and, when an accusation is made, you know, from that standpoint, yeah, I was obviously concerned because, you know, and proven out that basically you never know what's going to happen when things get into the legal system and the judicial system. So, um, you know, so probably concerned, but obviously had faith that, you know, he didn't do anything wrong, misunderstanding, you know, or someone twisting the truth or that, and that everything would be, would work out and he would be fine. When did that start to change for you, that perception that everything would be fine? Well, when he, when he was indicted. So until that, it wasn't until yeah. his it wasn't until his arrest in yeah. November 2011 that that's when you obviously at that point you're like, "Uh-oh," right? Well, I, mean, I think there was right before yeah. that. I think yeah. there were some feelings EJ had had about this doesn't this could go this could go in a really bad direction and then certainly certainly when the indictment came down that yeah sort of well and and obviously that they went to a third grand jury like you know they're, they're not letting this go like no. you know that probably that's you know probably started to be on my mind somewhat but i mean he i mean i i was the one that told him that he was had been indicted that hey they went out to visit my my one brother in Ohio, and and I I'm the one that called him up and said, "Hey, Dad, you know you you got to come home. They indicted. You've been indicted." So, um, so that obviously was, you know, obviously then that, that's when the concern um, really kicked into high gear. Heather, were you, I'm I'm assuming from what you just said that you were in the picture again at this point. I was, and I was with. EJ, when we found out, um, we were standing in a store getting ready to check out, and I looked over and I said, you know, what's wrong? And he said, we got to get out of the store. And we got to the car and I said, well, what, what's going on? And he said, I have to call my father right away. My father's been indicted. And I just, it was like time just stood still. I mean, it was like time just stopped and we went we just really went into preservation mode. But I mean, it basically, and that—that's like the start of when the next half year to eight months, you know, a lot of things just became a blur because it just, you know, you're walking around in a fog, and you know, with what's going on. And I think I have an advantage in this in this space, though. You know, it's not my father. Um, it's, it's it's neither one of our happening to either one of us it's certainly not happening to me but i'm watching it from the outside in and i think where i played a role for ej was the person of sort of calming things down you know getting him to sort of like breathe through what was happening because there was a lot of i have to do this and i have to do that and i have to call my father and i have to get here and i have to get there and what about my kids and, and i was 
sort of like let's just one step at a time. Like let's just back up and first things first. And mm-hmm. that was that was sort of my role for EJ in this process was to keep my head steady in the clouds because I knew he wasn't able to think clearly. And but I could also see like what was happening and what was able to happen and what could be happening. And and I was also in the middle of a of what ended up being my last football season at the time as well. So yeah, we're, we're going to get to the timeline. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but so sure. so Heather, just to be clear, are you believing that any of this could be true when you when no. you hear that he's been arrested? No, Mm-mm. you're positive. Yeah, and and why are you positive that Jerry can't be guilty? I just for all the things that EJ's already said, it's 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 never. It's just never even been something I've remotely seen or heard of or saw behavior like that. Or, but it's not. In a, it's not. You know, people might react to that yeah. by going, "Oh, well, your your head's in the sand. You just did. You don't want to see it." I don't. I sense. I've never met you, but I've spoken to you several times. My sense is you probably thought about this and and looked at your experiences and said, "No, this can't be. This doesn't make sense." Right? No, it, you know, and from what I had heard and, you know, conversations that I had had with with EJ and with the family, it just, it just seems so inconceivable and just pieces of what little EJ has shared so far, just things just didn't match up. And I, I still hadn't, I didn't have all the pieces that I have today, for sure, but I knew enough about what I was hearing at the time to think something's not adding up. This just isn't. This is impossible. This this is not something missing. All right. So you learn about the indictment. You call your dad. Hey, dad, you've been indicted. You got to get home. Um, and then I'm sure at some point soon after that, uh, are you? Do you read the presentment, or do you can't even bring yourself to read the presentment? Yeah, I don't think I ever. No, we did. I we did. Yeah, we did, we did read it. Okay, and so. Yeah, I- so, Heather, why don't you give me your reaction to the presentment when you read that? I mean, I read it. I had I had talked with a family member who had read it, and that family member said to me, you know, before you go any further down this road, like, have you read, have you read the charges? And I said, well, I've read some of it, but not all of it. And he said, I think you should take the opportunity to sit down and read. And so I did. I read it, and I, I had to... It's a lot, so I had to do it in sort of pieces, and and then I would, you know, I'd read a little bit, and I would ask EJ, like, what do you know about this, and what do you know about that, and and he would answer questions, and I would go back, and I would ask a little bit more, and I would ask a little bit more, and so we did read it together, although it was probably more about me reading and asking questions, and I think at some point EJ read it on his own, but certainly at that point it just again, didn't, pieces just didn't match up. Things just didn't, it seemed so unreal. And even just, you know, from my experience, getting a child home and knowing how unaccessible, and also just knowing how unaccessible EJ was as a football coach to during the season to his family and to his friends and to any type of, any type of social life, I just didn't 
foresee any of this being possible. I mean, the closest thing that I could possibly ever equate, and I, I mean no disrespect here at all by any stretch of the imagination, but the closest thing I can possibly equate to being involved with a football coach, whether you're married or you're dating or, you know, related in any way whatsoever during the football season would be married to someone in the military. I mean, when they are when they are away for the day and they are away during the season, they are absolutely 100% unaccessible. It's very, very unlikely that you can pull them away for anything. So it just reading the charges and thinking, this just can't, this is so... Unbelievable. And I, mean, I think like, I think you're spe- I think you're specifically referring to some of the allegations which allegedly occurred during, for instance, August of a football season. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were yeah. I mean, exactly. There were times when EJ was coaching, and I mean, he I mean he set it up very nicely when we when we first got together. He said, "Look, I I just I need you to understand that I will not be accessible." from these months to these months. And I was like, okay, I mean, I get it. And I, you know, I got it, but, like, Mm. it's really true. (laughs) Really not accessible. And so reading some of those things in the presentment just, it didn't didn't add up. EJ, your level of shock when you either read or get access to the presentment was what? Just, just complete disbelief that anyone could make make this up and and you know just completely like there's no way that these things are true accurate or even remotely believable or possible yeah obvious go ahead i'm sorry yeah just just like that this is you know what that what's in here is not even remotely close to any any anywhere near truth you know and, and so that but that's what you know that's what that indictment is it's one 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 side of the story that can basically doesn't have to be truthful you know the presentment is the presentment that the prosecution does and it doesn't have it doesn't really have to be basis in fact you know, and which we know they didn't make they didn't basis in, in, on fact because, you know, Mike McQuarrie himself said that he never said those things. All right, so let's talk about the McQuarrie situation, which obviously was the centerpiece of the presentment that shattered your lives, obviously the lives of everyone else in your family, and ended up destroying Joe Paterno, Graham Spanier, Tim Curley, Gary Schultz. All sorts of other people. I mean, it's it's the thing that most people know, and it's the, it's really without it. I don't even believe Jerry Sandusky gets arrested. By the way, do you agree with that? Just for for yeah. curiosity, yeah, you, you absolutely. You you agree that with, there's no Mike McQuarrie, no one's ever heard of this, correct? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's how important this is. And so you read, you don't know it's my, I'm assuming you didn't know yet it was Mike McQuarrie because for those first few days we didn't know. Right. Um, but you, you read about this graduate assistant, uh, a physician you, you well know, <laughs> having, yeah. having been one, um, and you, um, uh, you read about this allegation from what was thought to be 2002 in, in, uh, in March, of 2002, of 
a witnessing of a 10-year-old boy or thereabouts being anally raped. Um, can you remember what your reaction to reading that was? Um, well, just not anywhere near reality. First of all, my father wouldn't t- like take 10-year-olds into the football locker room to work out because a 10-year-old is not in a physical strength position for working out. So my father normally, when kids, when he got to be close to kids that were athletes, that were part of the second mile and, you know, were into football and things of that nature, and they, they would maybe go work out, they were always more in the early teens when they were starting to play sports and get involved in football or track or things of that nature, and that they were in a position to start lifting weights. Okay. A ten-year-old is not physically in a position to be lifting weights. EJ, let me stop you right there because what you're saying is so critically important, and while I have danced around that issue on the podcast, I don't think I ever articulated it as well as you just did because um, it has always been my belief that the kids that Jerry got closest to, this is natural since he's a coach, are the kids who are potential budding athletes. Mm -hmm. And you don't know that until they're 13, or, or 14. It's just You just don't know whether or not a kid is a potential athlete. You can have an idea, but you're, yeah. you're, but you're not going to know for sure until they hit puberty. Mm-hmm. And, and it is the, one of the primary problems that the prosecution constantly has in this case is they don't like the fact that Jerry is actually is really spending time with these kids at 13, 14, 15, 16, because that's too old for, mm-hmm. for their narrative. Right. And, and so they have to continually push it to be before puberty in, in order to make this work. Like for, I don't know if you, how closely you followed this, but you know, I would urge people to read Aaron Fisher's uh, trial testimony and the prosecution basically you know, the suspended animation where he's 11 years old for three years. I mean, they just, they did, they're deathly afraid of 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I I think what you're saying there, well, it sounds like a, a, a minor point is, is actually critical because that's who Jerry ends up being in these situations with. He, and they're not 10 year old or eight year old, by the way, you know, Frank Fina tried to tell the grand jury judge that the kid might have been as young as eight. Um, and, and this is this is in people's minds that right. an eight year old boy is a world away from a 13 year old boy. And by the way, the kid in the shower was th- almost 14. He was 13 right. years old at the time. Alan Myers. So I, I just want to make they it. Were, they were. He would normally get involved with kids that were athletes that were involved in sports because his belief is that these were kids that would have a support system of a coach, not him, coaches in their high school that would basically help support what my dad was doing and helping them be better athletes and give them discipline to do well in school because 
high school sports gives discipline, it helps them academically, and then that could help be a gateway for these young men to get to college, whether they play sports in college or not play sports in college. You don't take a kid who's a 10 or 11-year-old that's into playing the piano to go lift weights. Right. I, I, and, I, and, then, and, then, and let's follow the logic here. And the reason why that's well, – there's many reasons why that's important. But, but the key, that 10-year-old date was so important because in the minds of the media and the public, oh, this is a, a helpless boy that's being sexually taken advantage of by this older man. Now, we now know that physically that that would have been impossible – in all right. likelihood, anyway, I will get to that. But, but I'm also curious. So, so you're you're reacting from this from the standpoint of that doesn't make any sense. Obviously, you know from your who your dad is. It doesn't make any sense. You know, even it doesn't get out of the batter's box as far as who who you know your dad to be right. as, as far as it even being possible. But I'm also wondering, as a football coach, a guy who has been in literally the position that Mike McQuarrie was in at the time that this thing uh, allegedly happened. And, and the notion that he you know, told Joe Paterno and then the media narrative that Joe just basically put it up the flag, you know, the, the, the food chain and never, no, never followed up on it. And you know Joe Paterno obviously very well having played football for him. From a, purely from a football culture standpoint, is this story making any damn sense to you when you read it? No. No. It, it, it doesn't. I mean... Obviously, because I'm closer to it than others, because I, you know, he was my father. But like to hear some of the things that were said, it's just like <laughs> it's not. It doesn't describe my father in any way. But then, basically, as a football coach, it's just that it it just completely baffles the mind. There's like how it's like people are trying to connect dots A, B, C, and D, but B and C don't exist. You can you can't direct go directly to A to D because B and C don't exist, and that's what they're doing. They're just they're not not logical what these conclusions that people are making. Now, when you found out it was Mike McQuarrie, did you did you know Mike McQuarrie at all? Did you know anything I, of his reputation? No, not no, not really at all. Um, he was two years, two or three years older than my youngest brother, John, um, which, you know, you and I have talked about, I don't have a younger brother than John. Um, the, uh, I went to high school with Mike McQuarrie's sister, um, and so we were classmates. So Mike McQuarrie is in between me and my youngest brother. So I never really, you know, we didn't, we, we never played on the same high school team. We never did any sports together. Actually, I, I had more connection with Mike's older brother, and uh, who was like a year ahead of me, maybe a year or two ahead of me in high school that we played football together. And then Mike's sister was the same uh, high school. Well, obviously, in this, it, obviously, everyone knows each other in this community, and, and yeah. so, I'm, so I'm curious. I'm curious. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's <laughs> at that time it's less than forty thousand yeah. people. No, I, yeah, I understand. I get it. I'm not. I'm not criticizing yeah. it, but but it's but it plays an important role in this story. And 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 um, and this could not have happened this way, I believe, in in something that wasn't a small town. Um, right. Um, but anyway, without digressing, 
had you heard when when it becomes clear that Mike McQuarrie is the centerpiece of this? Are are you? I'm sure you're asking about him. Are you hearing anything about his reputation? Are you? Are you? Is anyone saying to you, "Wait a minute, this guy might not be trustworthy. He might have conflicts of interest. He might have other reasons why he would be vulnerable to manipulation." Or did that only uh, uh, come about later on, as as the years uh, uh, later you know, on? Pa- you later later on, basically, then when they got to like the trial or anything you know, like that and things that came out during that time. But, you know, prior to that, no. I mean, I remember him being around at the Second Mile Golf Outings, uh, some other Second Mile, you know, uh, um, events. But, like, we knew each other a little bit because of the connection of State College High School as well as, you know, both played at Penn State, but we didn't really know know each other. Just right. I, I knew his sister. All right, so you know, and so yeah. So, but basically, when all this then blows up and everything like that, then you hear some of the other rumors and things about Mike. All right, so let's do that then. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, since that's the name of the podcast, knowing what you know now about who Mike McQuarrie is and all the things surrounding him, what do you make of his credibility? Well, I, 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 <laughs> I obviously his credibility is is definitely something to be questioned. You know, I, I, you know, you know my family and how we are about talking about other people. I, you know, I, I don't want to sit here and say, you know, anything really negative about Mike, other than I wish that he could have spoken up and corrected some of the things that were that were attributed to his his type of uh, his testimony and things of that nature, and that goes into my father's defense. But but basically, you know, I think Mike had his own issues. You know, I think we can leave it at that. Mike had his own issues that he was dealing with, and basically, he I, I think he was pressure was brought to bear to put him in between a rock and a hard place in terms of what he needed to do for self preservation for his life. Um, I mean, I I remember I had a twenty fifth. 25, 20th uh, high school reunion, and uh, his sister and I, we basically hugged it out and had a good cry together because of this horrible situation that both of our families were put were put through. Whoa, 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 whoa. Mike McQueary's sister hugged it out with you at a high school reunion over... Yeah, so I guess that would probably been our 25th high school reunion. You know, we... We didn't say, we didn't talk about the trial, we didn't talk about specifics, but basically, obviously, we both have a connection about how this has affected both of our lives. And we, you know, we kind of gave a hug, because we were friends in high school, and, you know, she was misty, you know, because I think that, you know, she knew how this had kind of wrecked my family, you know, so to speak. And, kind of. You know, <laughs> so, uh, and basically the, the mm. pain that her family went well, through with this as well. Well, EJ, I mean, I get it. You're a Sandusky, so this is the way you guys do it. But you're being far too nice to, to Mike McQuarrie. Um, yeah. uh, Heather, are you willing to be less nice to, to Mike McQuarrie? <laughs> um, I'm probably not as forgiving. <laughs> I'm probably I mean, not as forgiving. I don't know that I would have hugged it out. With, with Kelly, no. Okay, I'm um, sorry, but but basically, you know, it, it. I I don't. I'm not happy, obviously, with Mike, 
but like I said, I um, and I think his, his life was completely twisted into pretzels and knots, and and that he, you know, he at that point in time, it's like self-preservation mode, and and the prosecution put a lot of pressure on him to say what they wanted him to say. Um, there's so many elements of of Mike's testimony that that are problematic, but as mm-hmm. you well know, uh, since you both listened to the podcast. I'm not even sure this podcast would exist without the date problem. Um, and um, and my belated uh, discovery, which, by the way, your dad should have been able to figure out by himself, and I'm mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. baffled by why that wasn't the case. But uh, my belated discovery that not only did the prosecution get the date wrong once, they got it wrong twice, and that this thing actually happened on December 29th of 2000. Uh, both, but I'm curious... Uh, I know both of you have listened to that episode. Do either of you have any doubt that I'm correct in that assessment? I, I think you are, I think more than anyone else, I, I have said this before, you've done more research into this than, than probably the, the main person that knows the most about this whole topic outside of my father and and his lawyers. Um, but but just the, the simple fact that you know, there was no one on campus, that means it obviously had to be a time during semester break. And so that doesn't, you know, that's not, it's in March, that's not semester break. It's, you know, there's stuff going on. You know, the the only possible time it really could have been, and then obviously, like you said, it's like you put it together with the, the, when my father didn't get the Virginia job, Mm-hmm. The head coaching job is that that obviously is a definite marker in terms of when it must have happened. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and and so, EG, I'm I'm particularly interested in your thoughts on the date thing from the perspective of having been an an assistant coach because uh, you, you know you've effectively been in Mike McQuarrie's situation, and yeah. um, and I think that. That that's that's a that's not even close to all of the argument on why the date is wrong, but like I'll give you an example. One of the reasons why I know February ninth uh, is is not possible, which is the current you know conventional wisdom date. That's the date they changed it to. February ninth, two thousand was the night that this supposedly occurred because we know that Mike goes to see Joe Paterno the next morning, right? Because uh, then, so they need urgency. They need that, that that to be February 9th. That is that is the date, and we know that it was a, the furthest thing from a quiet night on campus because it was a rock concert and a hockey game going on in the very same building. But here's the other thing, and I don't even know if you remember this in the podcast. February 7th that year, two days earlier, was National Signing Day. Back when right. national mm-hmm. back when National Signing Day is everything mm-hmm. for Mike McQuarrie. It, what are the chances, EJ, that that this could happen two days after National Signing Day and Mike never connect those two events? Not likely, because National Signing Day is always on a Wednesday, and so you're talking about a Friday night, and they probably like usually at, at Division One that basically so the sign you know the recruiting culminates with signing date on a Wednesday. And then you have basically the coaches that are doing things in terms of maybe reaching out to maybe preferred walk-on. So they're doing some things after National Signing Date 
Um, and then, then they usually kind of get a break from heavy, heavy time after signing date. So, um, so they're busy. Uh, yeah, they're they're busy. They're busy. They're, they're busy. They're busy during that time, and they're even. I mean, so they're not I, just. It's not just that they're yeah. busy. It's not just that they're busy. Their memory would connect yeah. the two. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. and and Mike, they, they, they Mike has never, Mike has never, ever, ever, even when they switched the dates, he he's never connected those. Which is, right. which from if you understand, especially back in that time period, the nature of college football is is not possible. Right. And and, then, and what is related to that is just another thing you you'll understand the culture of better than than almost anybody, and that is why Mike goes to see Joe Paterno on that Saturday morning. Um, right. Where are you on what's the more likely motivation? Having witnessed your dad anally raping a 10-year-old boy or finding out that Kenny Jackson has left Penn State to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers, thus opening up the wide receiver's coaching job? Which makes more sense? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in terms of you know, reality makes the most sense is obviously that there's an open position on the football staff. Because as a graduate assistant coach, you know, what you like at Division One, what you're hoping to do is that you can stay at Division One and get on with a Division One team rather than go down to a lower level. And obviously, if it's a program that you played for and now you're a graduate assistantship for, and the easy thing would be to promote from within, obviously that would be a motivating factor. Mm-hmm. And so you're you're obviously in agreement that that at least part, if not the majority, of why Mike calls Joe on that Saturday morning of February tenth, two thousand one, is because he just found out the job that, that he wanted, the wide receivers coaching job, is open. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Now I, I am curious. Um, you know, Mike famously says uh, that Joe claims that uh, he told him on the phone, this is about a job, don't bother coming over, I don't have one for you. Sue Paterno emphatically told me that never happened, and she was there that day. Right. Uh, what, what do you make of that? Again, from a, from a college coach's perspective, I've always thought that's either Mike's subconscious talking, making something up, or if he's even more uh, uh, of a scumbag than I realize, he's just completely contriving this because he knows he's vulnerable if someone figures out that this was actually about a job. Where where are you on that? Well, I, I think you know e- even if you look at it from the standpoint of like, hey, maybe I could use this to convince Joe, hey, hire me because then I won't. I won't bring this horrible thing that occurred to light. I mean, it, it just, it, you know, I, I don't even really know how to put it into words. I mean, it just, it just, it's baffling to me. Like if this is something that definitely occurred, like, like you've said, it's like, why wouldn't you, you know, talk to call the police to done something more to stop things if that's what you thought you saw mm-hmm. you know yeah. i mean there's so many yeah. things i would have done if yeah. i would have ever seen anything like that happening i mean yeah. 
rattle something, say, hey, call somebody's name. I mean, yeah. make some noise. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't have turned around and walked away. Now, well, wait a minute. He, he, did, he did slam a locker door. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and if he, he would have said, he could have said, Jer. Yeah, hey, Jer. Yeah. Hey, Jer. Hey. You know, like. I mean, I, I, one could argue that in the moment you're in shock and you don't know what you're seeing and you don't, it's disbelief. And sure, slamming a, a, a locker, sure, that, that's going to create. A distraction, but I would have to think and I would hope to God that I would react if I ever saw anything like that happening, that I would take a different stance and, and yeah. assert myself. And I'm guessing, by the way, I'm, guess, I'm guessing, Heather, that you're not six foot four, 235 pounds. <laughs> I'm not. And okay. I'm right. not, and I would still be proactive. Okay. All right. Now, now let, one, EJ, one last question on the coaching part of this, because to me, this is so important. It seems... Not that significant, but it, but I, as I try to figure out what the hell actually transpired here, do you think putting yourself in Mike's thought process here? Th- so this happens, and I'm right. December. Tw- By the way, your dad finally agrees with me. Uh, you know, everyone everyone has looked at this agrees with me. Um, that it was December 29, 2000. The next day, your dad finds out he doesn't get the Virginia head coaching job. Um. Do you think that Mike put the pause or the brakes on this, thinking, well, wait a minute, if Jerry's up for head coaching jobs, because that, ha- you know, everybody who's looking for a job knows everybody else who's up for a, a head coaching position, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and so, so I'm putting myself in Mike's shoes, and I'm trying to figure out why did he wait six weeks, regardless of what the hell he did or didn't see or hear. Yeah, do, do, I think I know where you're going. Basically, that if my father had gotten a job, that my father could have given a job to Mike McQuarrie on the Virginia staff. Is that what you're yes, referring to? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's logical to think. You know, because at that time, my father wasn't out of coaching for that long. He, You know, he was open to the idea of, even though he was retired from Penn State, he was still uh, looking at possible opportunities to be a head coach at other other places, so I mean, and and the like you brought out in terms of like his, you know, him leaving Penn State when he did. You know, we talked about that. He left because the university had a buy. He he retired because the university had a buyout, and and he could retire at the thirty five year pension rate, at, even though he only had like thirty thirty one years in at that time. You mean he didn't retire because Joe Paterno decided you can only coach two years as a pedophile on my staff? That's not what happened? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at See, all. Because I, I was told I was told by Louis Free and others that the only logical interpretation of this was that Joe Paterno knew he was a pedophile in 1998 and let him keep coaching for two more years. Yeah, uh, no. That's not that's that's incorrect. Not, wow. He was, he was wrestling with the idea of to take the early retirement – um and and or to take the early retirement or not to take the early retirement because he he whether and again I was not privy to his conversations with Joe about the future of the program and the future of my father's opportunity to be head coach there but that basically Joe uh, you know basically what we had known is that Joe would had told my father you know I'm only planning on coaching five more years five more years five more years. And that basically that my father would be in line to be the head coach of Penn State, 
And obviously it got to a point where, for whatever reason, Joe, at, at, you know, didn't necessarily see because Joe basically wanted to keep going. And, and, you know, he even said that, you know, after he went to my father, told, told my father at one point in time that when he was bringing Jay back onto the staff, that in a couple years he'd love to bring me onto the staff. Well, that never occurred. That I didn't press that or anything. I never went to Joe and said, hey, Joe, remember when you told me, you know, I, but that, you know, whatever that, you know, but he, I think my father realized that Joe's not going to retire at some point there. I think he looked at it as the opportunity that he would be able to retire at the 35 year pension rate from the state retirement at after 30 years. But to do that, he had to put in his retirement papers his last season in 1999, he was considered a consultant on the on the football staff, and so he was paid structurally different as a consultant than as a, a regular state employee that last year. And then he so then he retired after 1999, and then at that point in time, um, he was a state retiree professor emeritus with the university because he was a tenured professor. He was one of the last athletic coaches in Penn, at Penn State that had tenure status as a professor because he taught physical education classes uh, early in his career at Penn State. Um, and he was, so he was, he was professor emeritus when he retired, and he was basically open and looking at the idea of getting, of maybe becoming a head coach at another, another university. All right. Now, the other element, which is critical to the whole Mike McQuarrie episode, is who the boy in the shower was. And um, we all now know uh, that that was a guy by the name of Alan Myers, who you've already referred to in this interview. Do you remember about when you learned that the so-called McQuarrie episode boy was Alan Myers, EJ? Uh, my, my mom and dad probably told me at some point in time of between the indictment and the tri- start of the trial, that that's who it was. Um, it was. I'm sure it was probably, probably before the end of the end of 2011, by that time when they knew probably more about it and, and that it was Allen and that, and then that at that point in time, Allen was ready to testify on my father's behalf at that point in time. So when you learn it's Allen, you probably felt, uh, a bit more confidence that, that there was hope here, correct? Absolutely. Because you knew Alan very, very well, right? Yeah. How, well, how, well, well, did, how, how well, well did you know Alan? How well did you know him? I mean, fairly well. I mean, because he, my, when I was coaching at Albright College, my father had camps, like two weeks of summer camps at Albright College, and Alan was there as like a camp counselor. He was like, a, like an assistant coach at the camp and also a camp counselor. So he helped set up, set up for the day. He helped do bed checks, things of that nature. He did help with coaching. We even did like one team versus another team for games during during the camp. And he coached one team, you know, just like I coached another team of like eight nine kids. And so he was looked looked on as basically like a college, like not a college coach, but a coach for the camp. And so he, you know, obviously I got to know him well. I mean, there's. I don't know how many years difference between our ages, so it wasn't like we were close, close, but I knew him very, very well, and I knew that my father, that he had asked my father to, you know, basically stand with him on his senior night in his senior high school football game, 
Um, and then obviously later, I didn't know at the time, but that he asked my uh, father to come to his wedding. Um, and I do remember him coming to my my grandmother's funeral. So um, from his uh, from his Marine yeah. barracks in in yeah. North Carolina, where where was your mother's where was your grandmother's funeral? I think we had uh, we had a memorial service in Washington, Washington, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had something in State College, but then I think we had something in Washington. Um, and where her final resting place is there outside of Pittsburgh. Right. Quite a, quite a drive to go to the right. uh, funeral of the mother of your sexual abuser. Uh, yeah. While you're, someone who's not, you know, yeah, not well, a member of her family. Yeah. While, exactly. you're, while you're a Marine, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, eventually a sergeant in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're, you have to be feeling pretty good uh, at first that, Oh, this is Alan. We know Alan. Would you agree, by the way, that Jerry viewed Alan as another son who just wasn't legally adopted? Yes. And yeah. and and so he, he did a lot. Alan even lived at my parents' house when he was trying to uh, try to go to college at Penn State for like a, a few months. But I mean, basically, he and college weren't the right mix, which is then when he enrolled, I think, into the Marines. Now there's so much. There are so many elements of the perfect storm here um, that uh, that we easily could have. In fact, we did call one of the episodes of the podcast "The Perfect Storm." Right. Um, but one of them is that it is my belief that Alan originally coming forward saying, "I'm the boy in the shower. This never happened," giving the statement to Joe Mandola's investigator, and and giving you guys. Uh, some semblance of of confidence um, that this was all going to be okay, that this ends up facilitating the infamous Bob Costas interview. Because uh, Joe Amendola is uh, absurdly overconfident, um, and... Uh, and I believe that that's partially why he does this crazy thing where he, he offers up uh, your dad on the phone to Bob Costas and and disaster ensues. And uh, and then, you know, at, at, uh, very soon after that, uh, Andrew Shubin turns uh, Alan Myers from being a supporter of your dad to all of a sudden <clears throat> someone who is being considered an accuser, although uh, mysteriously disappears during the trial and never testifies right. in either direction. What, what do you make of my, my theory there on how Alan Myers' initial support actually ends up backfiring on your dad? Well, I mean, obviously my father, you know, my father offered to Tim Curley for, for Tim to speak to Alan Myers about this alleged incident and that Alan Myers would, 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 would have been able to speak to Tim Curley and say, yeah, nothing that's completely false. And no, there's nothing to that. That's completely fabrication. So Alan was ready to do that. Alan was, was, and, and, and we've, as we've talked about, Alan was, had gone in and talked to Joe Amendola and Joe didn't record it or, or in any way he didn't, he didn't, you know, have it typed out, you know, have a video, audio, no recording, whatever. That Alan came in, gave a statement to Joe Amendola, and Joe basically then set it up 
as like come back in like two days and we will do like a video testimony type thing. And then that never occurs because Alan then is convinced by Alan, uh, by Shubin to become an accuser, which I don't even think that he really con- out that he was convinced to become an accuser, but he, he allowed Shubin to run with the idea that Alan would be an accuser. Um, and again, as I've said, is that my understanding is that he was, well, first of all, that his mother had either was working or had worked for Shubin in Shubin's law office, and that supposedly Alan Myers was arrested for a DUI, and basically, I think it was the second possibly DUI, and that the only way that that DUI would go away is if Shubin could use Allen as an accuser in the, for the for the trial, which I don't think, you know, that Allen was crazy about that idea because it was Jerry, and Jerry was his, basically, essentially his father figure, and, but he let, he basically knew that the only way that basically to protect himself was allow Shubin to run with this idea that he was victim number two. Heather, you're, you're in agreement with that assessment? I am. And did you know Alan at all? No, I okay. did not. I, now, um, EJ, I'm at some point, and I'm sure this all took much longer than it should have, because at first, Joe Amendola is confused by why Alan has gone silent and is, right. and, and is naive and doesn't realize that the worst has happened and that Shubin has now not really 100% flipped him but has effectively neutralized him as a defense witness because he sees that where this is going and that Penn State's going to be paying out millions of dollars. Right. Um, and and now, in light of the disastrous Bob Costas interview, everyone knows Jerry's going down, so there's no reason to defend your dad. You, you might as well take the money. By the way, before I, I – I, we'll put, put pause on Alan Myers for just a second. Your reaction and and – uh, any insight you can provide to the disastrous Bob Costas interview when you heard your dad, uh, you know, well, pause? <laughs> That's very bad. It, it, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, obviously, he, my father, at times, can become an incredibly insightful, or I'm sorry, an incredibly like introspective person in terms of like, you know, thinking about what he's going to say, and as you've said. He has a nasty habit of repeat when he's asked a question. His way of answering is to essentially repeat the question in a way to make sure that he's under processing what he's being asked. And unfortunately, when he does that, he doesn't doesn't come across as like someone that basically immediately answers no. Absolutely not. That's horrible and disgusting thing, because he's trying to be, you know, uh, you know, thinking about his answer and make sure that he understands what he's being asked. And and you know, I, I think you know, like you said, everyone, we were all in a, in over our head from Joe Amendola to my father to all of us in terms of how to handle this and how to approach this, because uh, you know, it was it was completely. It was a complete disaster of an interview. We thought it would be good. It would thought it'd be a way, you know. I think 
Joe allowed NBC to convince him it'd be a way for our, our father to get his side of the story out and help sway. It's a, it's a logical thing to think of, but my father obviously was not prepared to do, and it was a phone interview, and so it didn't look good rather than people being able to see his body language on TV or things of that nature. And it just, it wasn't, it just, it completely backfired and was, I think, went in terms of hurting his chances in the public opinion. Heather, can you uh, confirm or deny that this is the way Jerry talks? Yeah, I can. He's, he's, I would say that he's very reflective and he does do that. He'll, he'll repeat a question to make sure that he understands and in an effort to be reflective and insightful when he answers it. Especially in a high-stress situation. In a high-stress situation, and it can come across as seeming confused and uh, not clearly articulating what he's trying to get across, for sure. How was your dad ever a, a top defensive coordinator? With I mean, I mean, you know, if, did, did that ever happen when Paterno said, uh, "Are we going to blitz here on third down?" and uh, and uh, are we going to blitz here on third down, Joe? Let me think about that. I mean, how did that work? Well, it, you know, you, you you actually, you know, in one of your one of the podcasts that you have, one of the episodes, you talk about that how coaches a lot of times it's like they're they're just like a professor in some ways. They are incredibly smart and decisive in the field that they are experts in. But when it's outside of their field of expertise, they're like a fish out of water sometimes. And, you know, you take a, like like I said, any type of professor that studies biology and put them in a situation that they don't know much about, they're a different person than when they're speaking about biology. I'm I'm just joking around. I think that's... that's, that's, the same way as coaches. I mean... But, no, you, you you put it better than I did. Um, and, 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 well, uh, but let me be more serious about this. My interpretation now, all these years later, of what was happening with, with Jerry when he responds to Bob Costas, are you sexually attracted to young boys? And he repeats the question, hesitates, and finally denies it. There's, there's two things, one of which the media uh, is responsible for because – even I had forgotten at, at one point that immediately before that, Bob Costas has just asked him, are you a pedophile? And he says, no. I mean, right. And so in his mind, asked and answered. I mean, right. I, I, he already and, answered yeah. the question. Right, yeah. right. I already answered that question. Yeah. And so I think, one, he's a little confused as to why are you asking me the same right. question again? Yeah. And, and two, the, the entire concept is so foreign to him that he's, He's stunned that he's even having to be forced to think about it. What, yeah. what, do, you, what do you make of that? That's, that's correct. That's, yeah, that's yeah. correct. Because why, why wouldn't he just answer no again? But he's, he's trying to differentiate what was the difference between you, what you asked me the first time and now the second time. And so he's, he's on his heels and say, and he goes, am I sexually attracted to boys? No. And so it's basically, again, no preparation in terms of how to answer those type, what type of questions you may be asked, how to answer those type questions, you know, in terms of like, hey, you're battling for your life or you got to answer this as an emphatic no, absolutely no way, 100% no. And I don't think he was prepped. He wasn't prepped for that. I don't think that. he was prepped yeah. before you know? I had that interview. 
And it certainly wasn't put at, but at the same time. We all felt, and as I told you, the whole family all felt that, like he's innocent. And so it doesn't have to, he didn't have to be a social, immediate, you know, genius. It's just the truth will come out and, he, and it prove that he's innocent. You didn't and need, you didn't need OJ Simpson's, you didn't need OJ Simpson's yeah. dream team because you're innocent. Right. Yeah, I just exactly. don't think that the, I just don't think any of us, including the family, realized. I mean, this is going to sound incredibly, incredibly naive, but you know, no one felt that he was guilty. So, I think we were all in over our heads. Like this was just, we were way deeper in this than we ever really mm-hmm. cared to imagine. Well, we, and again, it, we all had the naive, being naive in terms of that the, the justice system was Would about do its job. was about right. truth, finding truth and right. justice, and that. And and that your the odds of convicting a a innocent man are are very slim, mm-hmm. you know. And so we felt like with all the holes that in the allegations that there was no way that he was going to be convicted. But then, like as I as I said to you, like once we got to that point into the trial and all the media backlash and everything else that occurred during the fall of 2011 and, and leading up to the trial, there was absolutely no way that that jury was going to you know, find him innocent and then go home and have to answer for the next five to ten years of their life why they let a monster go free. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go back to Alan Myers. Yeah. Um, so in the aftermath of the Costas interview, see, all this case is a domino effect. I mean, yeah. it, because the Costas interview goes so badly, it becomes incredibly easy to convince Alan Myers to, sh- to shut his mouth and collect his money. Um, yeah. And... Um, and so at a certain point, eventually, Amendola realizes, Rutro, um, Allen is, is no longer on our side. Um, do you recall when you learned that, approximately, and, and how you learned that? Um, I, I, I think we, even through the trial, we, we kind of felt that at some point, mm-hmm. or we were, didn't understand why, that Allen wouldn't be wouldn't be called for the defense to prove that hey I'm number two I'm I'm this alleged victim number two and this didn't happen so we were all thinking that that was going to occur at some point during the trial that that was the hope that he would end up being called wow. to rebut. Okay, I don't know where you got. I don't know who gave you that idea. That was that was some that was some hopeful well, naivete right there. Yeah, yeah, well, I you know I that's. We didn't understand. I mean, and obviously, we like how could they convict him of victim number two? And victim number two did, is not testifying, and that we know that victim number two didn't think my father did anything wrong to him. Was was Amendola giving you the impression that Allen might show up and testify? Oh, I don't. I mean, that's it's probably you know being so long ago, I probably don't fully remember in terms of whether he told us that. But I think. I think at least leading up to the trial, we thought that at some point in time, Alan would come See, come forward and basically say, "Victim number two is me, and I'm not, and I'm not a victim." See, one of the things, and and who knows what you're just not remembering, and who knows what you yeah. were out of the loop on, because your life was right. being destroyed at this time, which we'll get to, <laughs> we'll get to shortly. Yeah. But but one of the more interesting things that your father told me in in our interviews together was that he, your dad told Matt that Allen had flipped before the trial. Mm. Now, to me, 
if you understand this case, that is the smoking gun that there's no chance in the world your dad is guilty. Because, because that is an act of, if, you're, if he's guilty, of colossal stupidity. Uh, uh, the, the likes of which make it impossible for him to have ever gotten away with this for 15 seconds. Forget, for, forget about 40 years. Because what he's doing there, let's pretend this whole story is real, right? Which is what I always do. If this, all right, let's pretend the story is real. What would we expect to happen? So if the story is real and he abused Matt, right? So, so, and he knows he abused Matt. So it, he's going to tell Matt that your star witness, Alan Myers, has flipped and is now going over to the prosecution. Which, right. which... Would in any rational world immediately make Matt, who you abused under this scenario, mm-hmm. um, uh, go? Well, wait a minute, you're going down, dude. I'm yeah. I, I'm I'm gonna go to the side that's gonna win, especially since I hear they're gonna be offering lots of money, yeah. wh- which is exactly what Matt ends up doing. Correct. Uh, and so it is. It is absolutely asinine, even by the standards of this case, that. Jerry Sandusky, criminal mastermind, decides to tell Matt that Alan Myers has flipped. And oh, by the way, it should be noted, what attorney does Matt Sandusky go to? Yep. Andrew Shubin, which is yep. Alan Myers' attorney. And oh, by the way, Matt and Alan apparently were more than cordial acquaintances. My understanding is they were friends. And yep. so, so this all fits together perfectly. Yeah. And, um, and, and and goes against the narrative. So I, that leads us to Matt. Um, so so before this hall goes down, what is your... Now, I know you weren't close to Matt because of different ages, but what was your impression of Matt before the crap at the fan with regard to your dad? Well, I, I mean, I think Matt was a... And I, my, my impression was that he was a, a, a in deep down, I think, a good individual, but it was a very lost soul and was uh, and had a lot of things going against him in life. And and my father um, was really invested to help him to get a chance to go to again, to get out of such a bad situation that he was in, to go, you know, to graduate from high school, to break the cycle of, you know, not getting an education, to go to school, go to Penn State, make something of himself, and, and, and basically break the cycle of in the poverty and uneducation and, you know, not being educated and, and not doing whatever in his life. And and like you said, if my father was abusing Matt, why would Matt basically stand up in front of a judge and say, I want Dottie and Jerry Sandusky to adopt me, if that was the case? That, I mean, that makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, Judge, I want these two people to adopt me, and he's brutally raping me. That's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And and as I told you, I have no love for Matt at this point in time because of how much you know pain that he's caused my family. I, I basically... I. You know, left Penn State in January of 1993, State College in January 93, and, you know, went to start my my career 
And it was after that that Matt came to live with our at our house. And so, um, you know, I never really knew. I never had a real close bond with Matt. I just knew that, you know, he was living at our, at our house and that he basically then was adopted. You know, there's part of me that's like, didn't quite understand why my parents at that time were still adopting children. I think to a certain degree that there was five of us. Um, but they really believed that they were, they, they were helping Matt and Matt wanted to be helped. And, you know, and, and, uh, basically, you know, that, that, so that, that occurred. And, um, but you know, I knew that there were there had been issues when when he was living there, you know, and and things of that nature. And um, even when he was just come before he was a foster child with us, and before being adopted, you know, he had stolen from my siblings, um, and and basically um, they had done some other things, you know, in terms of with my sister in terms of exposing himself and things of that nature. And that, you know, he had a, it was chalked up that he had a lot of issues, which he did. He, he is diagnosed with bipolar, things of that nature. So he has, has problems. He has some issues from that standpoint. Not an excuse, but that is what he was working with at the time. And but but he, you but you didn't see him as um, a sociopathic uh, pathological liar before all this, did you? I knew he was a liar. Oh, I, no. I, knew, I knew he had problems with lying. You know, because my mother had told me told me that, but not not necessarily that anything anything like this. Nothing like that. Okay, nothing. so the crap it's the fan, and of course the media won't tell you this, but of your uh, of of you guys, the adopted children, um, you know, Matt. I'm not suggesting the, the, you know, others of you weren't as supportive, but he was seen as one of the strongest supporters of Jerry. Right. He, yeah. he, he, um, he, were you aware that I, at the time that he had testified to the grand jury on Jerry's behalf? Yes. Yes. And, and was there, did you have any doubt at all that he was going to be strong and, and positive in, in, in that regard? No doubt. No doubt. No whatsoever. Doubt. I thought that he was basically, you know, would be obviously a, a very strong witness for for my father's defense because he's in the same, you know, path or the same situation that, like, say, Alan Myers or the other kids were, and that he had um, been given great opportunities with my parents and that he believed in what my parents had, they were doing and that he was going to basically come out there and, and speak the truth that, Jerry Sandusky had never done anything to him. And is it true that Matt had wanted to do a press conference after his grand jury testimony, but was dissuaded from doing so? I believe so. Yes. And and so, when the trial starts, are you getting any sense at all that that Matt might be wavering, might be getting a wandering eye, nope. nothing, anything, anything at all, even in retrospect, that makes nope. me even on the like the first or second day of the trial, I, I had come up from Washington. I was not at the trial the first or second day, second day, but I was at the house when they had all come back from the trial. And Matt was basically very loudly basically mm-hmm. saying that these guy, kids are all lying. Mm-hmm. There's, this is not true. This is not true. This is not true that he's saying from their testimony, testimony early there in the trial. And he goes, if I wanted to turn around and say that this happened, that happened, this happened, I could have done that. And he said, but they're, what they're saying, they're completely making stuff up because he knows as much as we all know that my father is too busy during football season, that my father doesn't, would never do those things. And he's saying, like, he's basically saying what we've all said is, like, it's 
how easy that these guys are absolutely lying, but how easy it is to basically say it because there's no way to prove it. Because how do you prove a negative when you don't even know the date? And so you witnessed this from Matt early on, yes. early on in the trial. You you physically witnessed this. Where, yes. where and and did it at the time in, in, in our family room, in the family room kitchen area. He vocally mm-hmm. was saying about how all these kids lied. That's that absolutely what, what they were saying was not true. And I overheard him saying that to you when you were on the phone with me one night. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you remember when that was, Heather? During the trial. During the trial. Well, yeah. the trial was so short. I mean, we're really yeah. talking about only a couple-day yeah. window here where, yeah. and, of course, all of what you're telling us dovetails 100% with the testimony of our fake, purposely fake accuser, A.J. Dillon, who, on the first day of the trial, went up to Matt and asked him for his reaction, and he said yeah. almost exactly, word for word, uh, what you're saying, he said to the family at home. Uh, yeah, might even uh, might even been the same day or the next it, day. It probably was. It was probably that first day of the trial. Probably it's probably the day that I had driven up from where I was coming from, um, and so it uh, that w- that was probably that very first day. Even mm-hmm. if I had to if I had to mm-hmm. n- nail it down, and they were they were probably directly talking about AJ Dillon, and so. In retrospect, obviously, you look back and then and you go, "Wow, the seeds have been planted in Matt's mind for he's going to abandon ship." But but when he said, "I could do that," did did any alarm bells go off in anyone's mind? Like, uh oh, no, uh, uh, no, and so no, because he didn't say he didn't say it like, "Oh, I could do that." It's like that 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 was something that he would actually was actually thinking about doing. No, he said it's like it's. It's just so ridiculous. I could do that. Like basically saying it's so ridiculous that, that there was, that, yeah, that. And that anyone could, could make these allegations and say these things because there was no there was no factual backing to any of these alleg- to what the kids were saying. So your mother's story, which given that you know she she's not exactly a cynic, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I tend to believe her whenever she's being cynical. Uh, her she believes that Matt in the middle of the trial asks. Your your mother to babysit his kids mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that he can then go to the police and become an accuser. Do you believe that that's what happened? Yes. Yes. One hundred percent. And which which is just it's just which mu- which Matt because Matt has no sense of like how wrong that is. Like he has no sense of that. Like maybe that he shouldn't do that. That like that maybe he if he's going to go talk to the pros- to to the police that maybe he shouldn't ask my mother. To watch the, to watch his children, who my mother still to this day absolutely loves the, his children and considers them his grandchildren, even though that they're not part of Matt's life. Would you agree? Not to do uh, get sidetracked, but I mentioned it on the podcast. Do you agree with my assessment that that her love for those grandchildren have has handicapped her greatly when it comes to criticizing Matt? Yeah, I don't understand it. I mean, because she she brings them up to me, and I tell her, "Mom, I don't want to hear about them." I'll, I'll tell her that. I'll, I'm like, I I don't I don't care what's going on. I don't consider them. I don't consider Matt one of my brothers. I don't consider his grandchildren my nieces and nephews. His children. Yeah, his children. Sorry. And, and we would be negligent. I mean, there's so many problems with Matt's story, but at this point, we would be negligent if we didn't at least mention that before the trial, but after Jerry's arrest. Matt went to court 
against his ex-wife to to uh, ensure that his children, including his son, could see Jerry at home. Yes. You, were you aware of that at the time? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's about as strong a support as you can get. Correct. Uh, uh, you you would think that you know that would box you in right. <laughs> to to yeah. never to never being an accuser, yeah. uh, especially after uh, Jerry Sandusky's arrest. You would think. Yeah. Um, so, so when you find out, do you remember what what the circumstances were when you found out that Matt had become officially an accuser? Uh, yeah, it was driving in the car to the trial the last day, and and Joe Amendola talking to my father about why my father probably should consider not testifying. And what was your reaction when you found out that Matt had become an accuser? Well. Other than, you know, rage and, and anger, um, just un, unbelief, dis, disbelief, and and just so uh, completely upset with him from that standpoint, and just the audacity that he, for him to do that when he knows that he's just doing it to to, to make money, to get money, basically, and just just complete disbelief, but. Obviously, we look at it as like it was a way to wreck my father's defense, you know, and because and at that time, understandably, where we were at that time, we felt that the prosecution had not proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. No way had our belief, and again, naively, we looked sitting there at the trial, hearing the prosecution, there's like, these things aren't even close to connecting the dots and being truthful and there's and that 12 people on a jury should see that these things aren't it doesn't add up but obviously we weren't dealing with we were dealing with a rigged deck you know well boy i wish i would have been involved in those conversations yeah um because because i think i think you know my uh, advice would have been uh radically different i mean obviously hindsight is 2020 but i i I do believe very strongly that uh, you guys could have used Matt as manna from heaven. I mean, I, 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 yeah. would, I would have given the strength of the evidence uh, against Matt's allegation, which is, a, which is stronger than anybody else's because of obviously him having been a, an adopted child – and because of all the things we've already mentioned, uh, you know, going to court against his ex-wife, asking to be adopted, uh, you know, all these other things, testifying in the grand jury, um, if you know, I, I am baffled as to why Amendola uh, would not have gone in the 180 degrees opposite direction and said, "All right, um, well, you know, let's yeah. make this trial about Matt Sandusky because it's better than making right. it about Jerry Sandusky. Let's make it about Matt, and right. if we and if we can prove that Matt's lying." sack of crap then they're going to figure out that everybody else is a lying sack of crap right yeah well uh, yeah and again hindsight with benefit hindsight but that that that, and it would have been interesting to see what a defense prosecutor defense attorney would have done and obviously i know it would have been difficult to a certain degree for my parents allow a defense probably to allow a defense attorney to really truly rip into matt because of how they their feelings for matt and the grandkid and his kids probably were but obviously, now looking back on it, obviously, yeah, I've been like, yeah, bring it on. Yeah, go ahead. Well, because, see. Because then you open up the door that my my other brothers get to testify against Matt. I get to testify against Matt. 
I mean, that's, you know, bring it on at that point. Um, well, although you just reminded me that your your uh, mother would never have allowed a uh, search and destroy mission uh, on Matt, and so that yeah. pro- probably would never have worked, and it's probably also emblematic of why yeah. you guys were all doomed to begin with, because... Well, but again, we didn't think we needed it. Right, but you know? but but yeah. a large you agree obviously that a huge part of the problem of the many problems the defense had in your dad's case is that your parents still had affection for some of these guys. Yeah. And 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 they and therefore one didn't believe that they were actually going to be able to do this and they, and two didn't want to cause harm to them. Yeah, because they believed that they were being misled by other by shady characters and individuals whether they're someone in their family or from shady uh, lawyers that basically were allowed, basically convinced them to do this mm-hmm. and to make money off it rather than being truthful. And so that's basically what my parents basically felt, that they were being misled. And then like you, what you said in the podcast is that to a certain degree, my father just felt like, hey, let's just talk to these kids and make them, you know, Make them basically just talk to them, and, and they'll admit that this is this is they're all make believe. This is all you know. They're they're being twisted. Why? Obviously, we just discussed why the legal strategy went the way that it did. Why didn't? I mean, why didn't you and your brother and you know, however other many of the siblings were willing to do it? Why didn't you hold a press conference and rip the shreds out of Matt? Well, I think at that point in time, I mean, looking back after the whole Casas thing and other things with the media, is that basically we had no they had no trust, no in the trust, press. and no feet, uh, no no faith yeah. in the media getting no out, trust. getting out even our accurate side of the story. You know, as I've shared with you, in terms of how my life, you know, and career unraveled at that time with with the media. Um, and just basically, we we didn't we had no faith in the media. Yeah, I think when you, it, I think this answer goes back to your original question, like why now? I think at the time, the months leading up to the trial and, and watching what had happened, not only to the family but to Penn State and to the Paterno family and everybody who was even remotely involved in this, and then for me closely watching EJ's life unravel, you know, it was not in anyone's, at that point in our mind, it was not in our best interest to step forward into the spotlight because we just did not trust that anything that we had to say or anything that they had to say, I should say, was even remotely going to be presented presented accurately. I get it. I I get it. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, you know, easy to uh, to say, well, boy, it would have been great if you had done this, and it's always easier said than done. But on the other hand, it, you do understand yeah. that the silence oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. that the silence was was seen as well. Matt must be telling the truth, otherwise, everyone would be attacking him, and yeah. um, and 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 it wasn't just obviously. That moment, I get in that moment, you're still worried, well, you know, um, the jury might still save us. Maybe we don't need to do this. But as you probably are aware, uh, you know, the moment that broke me uh, with you guys was um, when he goes on Oprah Winfrey 
and uh, does that ridiculous interview where he melts down uh, when asked, how do we even know that you're telling the truth uh, in a way that's far worse than your dad did on Bob Costas? Mm-hmm. And we're given this golden opportunity to to try to at least open some minds here. And none of you were willing to do anything. And right. and I, I think you can understand my frustration there, can't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I do. I do. And But, uh, you know, look, again, looking back on it, you know, and at, at early 40s, EJ, and, you know, where I'm at now, um, you know, I was, and my parents at that time also were trying to, like, keep us out of the fray that basically this was something they were dealing with and that not necessarily to entangle our lives into it because it was all going to work out. You know, that was the thought thought process and the belief process with the whole thing. And because, you know, I had a career that I was trying to carry on and, and not that I didn't want to be tainted by it, but that's what they wanted to kind of, they were like, let, you know, protect yourselves and your, your, your family. And, and this is all going to work out. It's all going to go away and such. And so it basically, um, that was the way it was looked at. Um, and so... Uh, That's not to say that I wasn't yeah. encouraging and urging to have a voice and to say someone needs to find a voice, someone needs to yeah. speak up. How do we speak up and speak out in a way that, you know, gets our side of it. I mean, yeah. we can't just sit silent. Right. And, and again, I, I, look, I'm trying to, you guys have been yeah. nice enough to, to tell your stories in, in incredibly uh, transparent uh, detail uh, here. So I, I have enormous amounts of empathy for your situation, which we're going to learn more about as we finish this interview up. But um, I'm, I, I was very much aware that when you allow someone like Matt to become a monster, there, there's no slaying the monster. You have yeah. to you have to slay the monster in its infancy, be, uh-huh. because once it becomes too large and the media becomes invested in them being a hero, you're done, because yeah. no one's going to believe anything you have to say. Right. Uh, you have a very, 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 very limited opportunity, and I get it. Wouldn't have been easy. I I get it. I more than probably anybody on the planet, yeah. and um, I, I am kind of curious. You know, something you said, EJ, about your career, which you still had hope at that time you could be a co- you know, college football coach. I, I, I'm getting deja vu over what I believe to have been the, the handicap that Jay Paterno has had during yeah. all this. I believe that Jay Paterno knows this whole story is crap, that, that, yeah. he, that even your dad is, is innocent. Do you, by the way, do you, believe, do you agree with that? I think, it's, I think it's very likely that Jay thinks it's crap i obviously he's never said that to me but i i think that he does he, he realizes this is completely you know a miscarriage of justice I, I do kind of think that he feels that way to a certain degree um but uh but yeah he, he and i you know have have basically you know have not been able to care carry on our careers as coaches from this because of this him for being his last name being Paterno and my last name being Sandusky. And because of that, though, because of the optimism that uh, Jay has, whether it's in broadcasting or what have you, Jay has not articulated his real beliefs or even his own real experiences about this case. And and it's been 
overly optimistic and it's been, in my view, naive. Uh, and even as a member of the Board of Trustees, where he has, you know, in, infinite credibility along with the paternal name, he's not been willing to do so. And it's it's just it's very confusing and frustrating to me um, as to, to why that's happened. And, and especially having you know seen it with you guys, I, I get it's a lot. I want to emphasize it's a lot easier said than done. But there are consequences to to taking, you know, what seems to be the easier or the the path of least resistance. Uh, sometimes you got to do the hard thing. And yeah. well, I, I think for for Jay and the Paterno family, it's like Jerry's been convicted. Why would they now when their father's passed away? They're trying to basically as much as because my father has been convicted. They're trying to, you know, push away from from the Sandusky name and the and and that and, and from that standpoint. And so they, are, you know, because they don't want to come out and now be supportive of a, of a convicted child molester. So that's that's probably why the approach that they've taken now. But yeah, obviously before he was convicted, it would have been very nice if the if the paternal family could have come out and said that, hey, we 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 don't believe Jerry's guilty. But again, as you've stated in the podcast for various reasons, they decided to take the path of like push the push the separate the Sandusky and paternal names from everything. And I get it, I, I get it, I understand why they probably thought that at that time. Um, but yeah, and probably like why, you know, I'm sure right now they're basically, Jerry's convicted. So why would we come out now well, and be supportive of him? Well, the, the reality though is the only path, and I've yeah. tried to explain this to everybody and I've had remarkably limited success. The only path to exoneration for Joe Paterno or Grant Spanier or Tim Curley or Gary Schultz or Penn State in general is for your father to be exonerated. That's the exactly. only that's exactly. the only path, and everybody, you know, it's probably too late. But you know, it, it, you know, your dad's still alive; he's still appealing. Uh, we'll get to that momentarily. But uh, you know, to me, it's it's just an asinine that people don't understand. That's the only path, um, and and it's also, by the way, the truth. So right. so so that ought to matter now. Um, so back to Matt briefly. Um, I mentioned the Oprah interview. You know, you know, this is getting ahead of ourselves on the timeline, but. Since I mentioned it, I got to get your reaction. I mean, what, what was your both of your reactions when you saw Matt have the meltdown in front of Oprah? I, I'll be honest with you. I don't. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't watch it. I don't. I don't because I, I I am disgusted by this. Yeah, I so I don't. I didn't watch it. We uh, we don't have a lot of kind words to say about Matt at this point. It just there's. Well, we have zero kind words. Yeah, Heather, Heather you've ne- you neither of you have watched it. I've never watched it. I can't. I can't bring myself I don't to watch think it. DJ can bring himself to watch. Oh my! But oh my gosh! This is the best. This is like the the most amazing <laughs> moment of the entire uh, case. You got to watch it. Just don't watch the first. You know, ever. Yeah. Just watch the last two minutes. Yeah, it, I'm it, sure. It, I'm sure it, it would probably put me over. It's just a, a, it's a, it's hilarious though. It's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it is, it's almost comical. If you asked an actor, I want you to. I was por- just going to say, I bet it's a good acting job. No, so. no, 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 no. I'm talking about the meltdown. If you yeah. asked an actor, okay, here's your role. You are going to. You are a liar 
who is going to melt down in the face of one simple question from Oprah Winfrey, and you're going to turn into a puddle of nonsense instantaneously and expose yourself as the fraud you are. There's not an actor in the world that could have done it better than Matt, yeah. Matt Sandusky did. Well, I mean, I, but I, I think it also, that also goes back to the same thing with he and Alan Myers, that they, to a certain degree, both have get very strong guilt feelings of, guilt of what they did. To, to a person that did nothing but try to help them be successful in their lives mm-hmm. and that they basically do feel some sense of guilt of basically what they've done. Um, Liz Abib and I, during the podcast, theorize that, and it's a long shot, make yeah. no mistake, but that if we were going to pick one of Jerry's accusers that would flip back, the one person that would have an, a potential incentive to do so, partially because he only got – like $325,000, and he's already been paid. So he's, he's got no more money coming in, and the gravy train has ended, essentially, for him. That it would be Matt. That, that, that Matt, you know, in, in, his, in a perverse way, could actually, you know, get more attention and play a big trick on the media by blaming the media for having manipulated him into a false accusation. And then, you know, I'm sure your parents would welcome him. Good, with- but where does he go from there? Okay, but wouldn't, well, your, wouldn't your mom, um, I mean, your mom would, he would be the prodigal son, wouldn't he? Uh, I, I would have a tough time with my mom uh, doing that. Yeah. But, but basically, but he's also, but he's taken this and made it a cottage in- industry with the exactly. found- foundation that he created with this. So he, it's like you said, with this whole thing, ever, there are so many people from politicians to uh, board of trustee people to, to uh you know, prosecutors to judges, things of that nature, that have all based, they all have to keep the narrative right. going. I mean, if one domino falls, they all fall. Yeah, because then they're all guilty of not following the truth or not, or doing something or using this, this episode to. So you don't, you, you themselves. don't see, you don't see that Matt's guilt would ever facilitate him admitting that he, he had lied. I'd, I'd be surprised. I would be shocked if he ever did. Okay. I don't know. I mean, there there could be enough guilt to to get him there. You, but, I'm sorry, uh, E.G., You think that Alan Myers? You've already stated this. You think that Alan Myers is guilt written to the point where he yeah. could he could eventually break. Why do you believe that? I cause I, I just feel that Alan Myers, based on on how. how how much I, I know Alan Myers, and basically the love that he has for my father, or had for my father, that um, and thankfulness that he had, and gratitude that he had towards my parents, both of them, not just my father, um, in terms of helping him in his life. That that I I just don't think I think that's why he couldn't never bring himself to actually go to court and be and and come out as a, as the the you know in a way that he would actually be an accuser and that he basically allowed Shubin to use him as an accuser but not actually have to testify. And just collect the $8 million yeah. or whatever mm-hmm. it was that he got from Penn State. Yeah. I, I, I was there the day he testified at, at your father's appeal hearing, and uh, it was obviously uh, contrived. It was, it was absurd. He, he couldn't remember anything. Uh, he had no anger towards your father at all. He had a lot of anger towards me, 
and and, uh, and Al Lindsay, your your dad's yeah. lawyer, but no anger towards your dad, which was awfully uh, bizarre, yeah. uh, given the nature of of the supposed circumstances. I wish I believed that you know he he could break at some point. I had hoped for many years that he would, but then it became obvious to me uh, that day that that there was too much in it for him, and and his money is not going away anytime soon. I mean, he's going to be paid for many many years. That's the way Penn State, as you know, planned this all out. So that there's no way for all of this to collapse. Yeah. Um, so, you know, either silence for a long time. Right. Um, but, basically, but basically, that's what my mom has always said, that at some point when the money runs out with, with these accusers, that they that then they will be the ones to, like, basically start up and say, I was duped. I was I was conned into. Well, that's why that's why I thought yeah. Matt would be the one, because your mom, frankly, a, a huge part of my strategy uh, here was based upon your mom telling me, giving me the scouting report, if you will, that Matt will break, that yeah. Ma- that Matt will eventually break. She was positive of that I yeah. I didn't know. The, well, you know. I I, could, I think that he would have to suffer some type of big issue in his in his personal life right now. Like if he and his wife, current wife, split up, that could be something that would be big enough. I'm not wishing that, obviously, but you know, well. <laughs> Again, I have no no love for Matt, but but basically it would it would need to be something like that, where his security with who he's with is broken, and he doesn't have anyone else to turn to that he would actually possibly turn back to my mother for okay. help. All right, so I mean, I mean that kind of at the end of the day, Matt has to Matt has to look himself in the mirror, and he has to put his head down on the pillow and be at a place where he is with what he's told and if he can do that and feel good and have a good conscience then more power to him but i i'm not confident that i could live that life i'm right there with you heather i really can't so so let's go to the verdict um the the final moment that i knew for sure that your dad was innocent was when i interviewed him and your mom uh, the second time in prison, and I asked them the first time, what was the first time that they thought, uh-oh, this might not work out okay for us? And both of them, in excruciating detail and with tears streaming down their faces, described for me the moment of the reading of the verdicts. And um, that's the only answer that would make any sense uh, that, that's, that's an answer that would only make sense if you were innocent, especially if you're a very religious person and you believe that there's divine intervention that's going to salvage you uh, or something along those lines. Uh, because otherwise, in this story in particular, there's a thousand moments when if you were guilty, you'd go, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only <laughs> the reading of the verdicts that you realize, oh gosh, all of our faith that we put in the system and in humanity was misplaced. Uh, what was um, each of your reactions to the verdict itself? Uh, Heather, why don't I start with you? Um, you know, I, I, I watched it on TV. I, I wasn't with the family and I wasn't with EJ, which was... Probably a good thing. 
um, I think I was just in disbelief. Honestly. That it had come to this. That it had come to this. It was, you know, it's been a journey. So you didn't think it was, even though you knew that it was theoretically possible, it just was beyond your comprehension that, in your words, it could come to this, that this would actually happen to a man like Jerry Sandusky. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just, it just felt like, it just, it just felt utterly just like unbelievable. And, um, it just, I, I just really had no words and I really, I, I don't know if I even still have today words for, and, and anyone who's close to this on any level I think is in the same place that's just entirely unbelievable to see something like this get to this point. And, you know, days following and people would ask, you know, do you believe and do you think that he's guilty? And I would say, you know, always no. But the person, the person that they have and had portrayed in the press and on the news and in the mainstream sort of media, wherever you were reading it, is not the person that I knew and know and have learned and have grown close to the family and to love. It's not who I know. And the person that I know is not this. So for me, it was unbelievable, and then to know that our lives, I mean, no one's life was ever going to be the same. EJ, what was your reaction? Well, I, um, I was not in state college. I, I was back home at the time, um, and uh, I remember watching it on TV, and and it was like a, a, a kick to the stomach. I mean, I was just, that was physically nauseous and, and disbelief and shock. Now, I, at that point in time, I was well aware of that there was, when you go to the jury, that there was a chance that it was not going to go our way, but at the same time, I held, had belief in the judicial system that the truth would come out and that the, the, that the prosecution had not proven their case and that the right thing was for the jury to, you know, find them not guilty. And, um, and just like when it was announced, basically, like I said, it was like a, a, a kick to the stomach and I was nauseous and, and just in shock and, 
just you know just felt for my my siblings and my my mother and my father and incredible sadness for them and heartbreak for the whole thing um it just it really it just it was you know soul crushing heartbreak that I can't describe really mm-hmm. And it's important to point out that you know, we're now in the spring of 2012. We're uh, seven months removed from the initial firestorm. Uh, so much has happened in between that time. Obviously, Joe Paterno is fired and then dies, which is another incredibly important part of the perfect storm in all this. Yeah. Um, and from a number of different perspectives. But your lives during this time period are beyond, uh, I guess, destroyed is probably the, the, the only word that makes any sense. At the time when the firestorm first occurs, almost 10 years ago, you're a, a football coach at, at Westchester University, correct? That's correct. And, and, and for those that don't know, I mean, uh, what, Division three? I guess it would be considered? Division uh, two. Uh, Division two, yeah. but uh, what, but you know, actually, uh, Westchester University. I don't know if that was still going on at that t- this time, but that's where the Philadelphia Eagles used to do their training camp. Uh, um, and so, you know, it's a legitimate football program. You're you're a coach there, and you know, just because you have the last name Sandusky, uh, all hell breaks loose on your life. You're not even mentioned anywhere in, right. in any of this. You have nothing right. to do with any of this. You're, you're right. just simply the adopted son of Jerry Sandusky, and describe for us what happens to your life. Well, I've basically been coaching about 20 years in my, into my career. Um, I had started uh, like a year or so uh, before that. Uh, Westchester, if you're a, a, a athletic coach, you can get your master's degree tuition-free. You get to pay for your books and things of that nature, but you can only, you know, take two classes a semester. And I'd start doing that to get my master's degree in sports management and administration um, while, you know, because at that time I didn't know, you know, I was an assistant coach at Division II school. I didn't know what, where my future wanted to go, so I thought I'd get my master's degree to expand my opportunities in later in, in life after coaching. Um, and so I was in part, and part of that is 2011 season. This firestorm erupts. Um, and so then I have, uh, we had like two or three games left over still in the season, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that. And, um, essentially the last, well, I mean, I had, I then had people, news reporters coming to our practices during the week to try to talk to me, interview me, which is obviously a distraction that, you know, our head coach obviously didn't want or need or for our players to see. They weren't looking to talk. I don't know if they talked to the head coach at the time or or I doubt they talked to any of the players, but they wanted to try to talk to me, obviously. And I was basically avoiding the media. I had – I think it was actually Lester Holt show up unannounced to the football office and tell one of the other assistant coaches that um, he was a friend of mine and wanted to see me, uh, wanted to, was looking for me. Um, I may be wrong, may not have been him, but it was an NBC reporter that showed up 
at the Westchester football office. Um, I had uh, I had been separate. This was before, like I had separated from my wife before Heather and I even started dating, and um, I was living in Westchester. My uh, children were with my uh, uh, ex-wife in, in in another town, east closer to Philadelphia. And um, I had a, a, a news crew show up to my ex-wife's house and knock on the door and have a camera going and a, stick a microphone in the, basically in, in, in the doorway. And my youngest son's the one that opened the door. Um, that was a great con- phone conversation from my ex-wife, obviously. Um, and, and we had separated for nothing related to my father that was just basically growing apart. Um, and so, uh, so then basically the last two home games of the year at Westchester University there, they had bomb threats, they had bomb scares, they they had, uh, they had alumni and, and, um, boosters of the football program called the university, alumni of the university that may not have been boosters of the football program, but just alums of Westchester, like, actually call and complain to the athletic director and the, I think the president's office even. But like I said, the last two home games, there there was a bomb threat. Um, and uh, um, and I, I basically needed to be escorted off the field after the, the la- after the game was over with. I was escorted off the field with the uh, campus police at Westchester. There were death threats and there were death, death threats sent to the home, and then basically from there, you know, I, I went out, you know, after the season was over, I went out recruiting, and I think there were some high school coaches that basically called and voiced their concerns because a Sandusky's coming into the high school for recruiting, and they didn't understand that. And so, yeah, that that occurred, and then, and basically, you know, my contract wasn't renewed. Um, you know, so, and again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not really – I don't necessarily think it was the head coach's decision. It might have been a decision made over his head that basically you're not going to bring him back. Um, And I I can't prove that. I don't know that, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case, you know, that essentially Westchester doesn't need this (laughs) kind of hassle. Um, And and I I basically – so basically January of 2012, I started applying to jobs for coaching jobs, um, all along the East Coast, wanting to hopefully stay close to the Philadelphia area, so I'd be close to my children. Um, and and I had finished my master's degree in May of 2012. Um, and basically, I was then even before then, I'd started to apply for uh, administrative jobs in athletic departments at the college level. Um, and and basically, I probably applied for over 50, easily over 50 jobs, either coaching or administrative jobs, and I, I couldn't even get a phone call back or let alone an interview. I couldn't even get a phone call back. And then I had applied to a job at another Pennsylvania State uh, uh, state college school in the, in the Pennsylvania State system. I'm not going to say who they are. But basically, the search committee for that position, it's a position, it was an offensive line coach position, and I was uniquely qualified for that as being a former offensive line coach, coached offensive line, had been a a head coach um, in my career. And uh, a 
committee of this, uh, uh, a member of the search committee who was like the faculty rep advisor for that unit, for that school, called up my graduate program uh, advisor, who was also the faculty rep for Westchester, and basically said, hey, off the record, we can't, we can't even touch him. We can't interview him. We can't even talk to him. We can't even acknowledge that he sent an application, uh, a resume in. And so he basically said that to her to let me know that basically that that was the case. And that was the case for every job I applied to. I never got any type of callback. I never got any type of interview for like over 50 jobs. And again, I was a 20 year, I was my own, I had my own career, 20 years in coaching. And, but. Whereas five years before. Yeah. You know. I was People a, would have been calling and yeah, you know, I, w- I was a head coach at Division three school, had modicum, you know, or decent success, you know, hit hit or miss there, and so, you know, so that was basically, uh, it, it was I basically ended up having to change careers, and I had to make a decision to uh, leave southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, and, uh, because I basically looked at it as like, I don't know how I would be able to get a job in Pennsylvania to be able to, to try to, you know, support myself, let alone pay, pay child support uh, and such. And, um, and so basically I, I made the decision that I had to leave the state of Pennsylvania for my own financial well being and change careers. And so basically your, your entire life's work is wiped out over something that you had nothing to do with. By the way, even if it was real, even if it was true, you had absolutely nothing to do with it. And you have to leave the area. Uh, You told me in our prior conversation that you even had your children change their name from Sandusky. Uh, Correct. What was that like? Well, that was obviously one of the hardest things I I had to do in my life to have to allow my children's names to be legally changed. But I just basically looked at it as that they're my children and I want them to have every success in life. And I didn't want them to to be burdened with a with the last name for them to be able to do what they want to do, or if any of them, when they reached the age to go to college, if any of them wanted to go, even wanted to go to Penn State, I, you know, which I would love for them to do, um, I I didn't want them to, I wanted them to have a chance to do that if that's what they wanted to do. And so, um, and basically, you know, how when they're in junior high and elementary school and how kids can be with kids, you know, I wanted I wanted them to have an, as much of a normal childhood as possible and not be worried about the sins of the father, so to speak. And and so obviously that was a tough decision to do because of I am proud of proud to be a Sandusky. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I felt like how could I not give my kids every opportunity to, to live all their dreams and 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 from that standpoint, it was tough because and you know because I'm sure to a certain degree that you know my siblings and you know basically questioned it to a certain degree. I think maybe deep down they understood it, but you know obviously it was something that was questioned. But I was like, 
you know, I want the best for my kids. I want them to do everything that they want to do in life and not be denied something just like I got to, I experienced being denied opportunities for employment because of a last name when in the grand scheme of things, it was nothing that they did. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, I, I think when people look at this and they read from it what they want to read from it, truth, not truth, whatever it is, people just don't understand the collateral damage and how people are affected and how lives have been changed. And anyone who has remotely touched this, has, um, their life has changed. And unfortunately, the family on either side of this has been collateral damage. Heather, it must have been excruciating to see a guy you obviously love have to endure this happen to his life and career. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing most women probably would have left him at this point. Why didn't you? <laughs> Do you ask that every day? <laughs> She, she may ask that herself every day. <laughs> Maybe not just for this reason. But, so. um, you know, I love EJ. I didn't fall in love with EJ because of his father. I love EJ because of who he is. That's... And if you can't stand next to the person you love and support, who do you stand next to? And I was willing to walk this journey with him because I believed that, and I still believe that his father is innocent and EJ has nothing to do with this. Well, good for you, Heather. Um, I wish there were more people like you, uh, especially in this particular story, uh, but unfortunately there, there's not. Um, I, a couple quick things as we wrap up here. I, you know, the, the issue with your kids and the Sandusky name reminded me that I, I have not asked you about your, your other adopted brother, Jeff, EJ. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff has a tattoo that, that says Forever Sandusky. Uh, which I, I, I'm pretty positive was a reaction to Matt changing his name from Sandusky and then changing it back because he realized the media didn't care about Matt Davidson. Um, um, Jeff obviously got caught up in a horrible situation, uh, yeah. which got an enormous amount of publicity, a ridiculous amount of publicity that somehow was connected to your dad's case. I mean, even... The New York Times, huge headlines, uh, portraying this as somehow, you know, the, the, the son of the father committing the same crimes as the father, which you know, was, it was absurd on every possible level. Right. Uh, he, he, I, I don't fully understand what happened with Jeff. My sense is that, that Jeff uh, did some stupid things, but I, I'm not 100% sure he had any criminal intent in what he did? Right. Do you, by the way, do you, do, do you agree? Yeah, I agree. I mean, he, Jeff 
is uh, a a good person, but he's not. He he was physically abused before he came to live with uh, my parents, um, and so he he unfortunately you know had some. Like he he was he was never a great student. He was never you know really uh, he he had mental deficiencies, so to speak. Right. You know, academic deficiencies and and mental deficiencies. Do you do you believe do you, do you so believe I'm, do you believe that Jeff again he did some he clearly sent some text messages yeah. that were dumb. Yeah. Um, do you believe that the ex of of his girlfriend, uh, who was the father of the the teenage daughters involved in that, had it out for him because of his last name. Oh, maybe I, that that could be. I I don't really okay. know the ins and outs of what his right. relationship well, but, was like, but well, yeah, but I think I think so. But again, um, it just just poor decision making. Right. You know, really, he was trying to prove a point to someone. But again, the when you send text messages, the the your intent doesn't always go come through right when um, you show a third party all right but the, the thing about jeff that i think is relevant to your dad's case mm-hmm. uh, and i'm just and i said this in the podcast and i wanted to give you a chance to either confirm or deny uh, this belief of mine uh if your dad was going to abuse one of you adopted kids the last in the list would have been Matt, and the first in the list would have been Jeff as far as vulnerability. Would you not agree with that? Uh, I, I think I, I see where you're going, mm-hmm. um, and that could, could be accurate. I, I, never, I never even thought about that you know, from that standpoint because okay. I, I just don't think my father would do it to any of them. You know, I, I understand. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. asking you to contemplate something yeah. that's absurd uh, yeah. on its face, but it's, if people understood Jeff... If somebody was going to be yeah. abused, you, Heather, you know where I'm going with yeah, this? Yeah, I mean, I think if, if, if yes, if, if we're going to the place of just complete absurdity, yes, yeah. yes, then that's your logic would make yeah. sense. Okay. Yeah. All right, real quick in our, in our final moments here, let's talk about uh, both of your parents uh, and how they are doing now. Um, uh, you know, obviously, I, I made no uh, mystery of the fact that you and your and, and me and your mother have not always gotten along. Uh, at, at times, we've famously uh, gotten along very poorly. Um, <laughs> obviously, you're going to uh, side with your your mother, and I respect that. Um, but can can you evaluate uh, EJ based upon and Heather? You too. Uh, that relationship based upon what you know of both of us and, and can you understand my frustrations? Yes, I can, I can understand your frustration, John, in that regard. I mean, my mother is a very principled woman. She has very, uh, holds very Christian beliefs. Um, and, and, and definitely is very, has a, a moral code. Um, and she doesn't, believe in lying she doesn't believe in swearing um and and so i can understand and uh how the two of you have butted heads at times and how that basically when you drop an f-bomb to her <laughs> that she may hang up on you that i think i can i i can i i can guarantee you i i've said less than that 
John to her, and I've been scolded for it. So I under I can understand that when you started using colorful language, how my mom would hang up the phone on you. <laughs> Heather, you have anything to add on this? <laughs> no, just what? for the mere sake of wanting her ears not to hear it, I could hear her <laughs> hanging up the phone. <laughs> Well, I just wish that that was the only problem we had. I mean, it, it goes much deeper than that. But and yeah. look, I mean, I, look, I I have I've been probably too. If you ask Liz Abib, I've been way too tough on your mom uh, during yeah. the podcast. Uh, um, however, I I will I will stand by uh, the justification of my level of frustration. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I mean, Daddy is yeah. an incredible. She's an incredible mother. She's an in, she's she's. I mean, from from you know, from a daughter-in-law point of view. I mean, talk about Sorry. undying support for her husband and strength. I mean, if if you can't take strength from her, I mean, she has for years, two times a week, would drive to visit Jerry, rain, snow, sleet, whatever it was, and. Religiously, that was her. That was her routine, and stands by him today, and as she should, right? I mean, as she should, and you know, blindfully has walked through the fire with him, and and so I take a lot from that, and I I think people can learn from that. I mean, people so quickly in life turn a blind eye and, and you know, the, the the notion of standing by someone you love, you know, through thick and thin is, I don't know, it's just it's not taken quite to the degree that it once was. And so she, there's a lot of strength that she has demonstrated not only for the, her marriage but to her children and certainly to her grandchildren. And she has really, you know, at times she's brought the family together and, I, I mean, I, I my respect for her as a as a person and a human has only grown yeah. in these last ten years. How she's carried on in in terms of you know trying to help with the appeals process and such, but just the how she's basically like, well, I'm just going to live my life and mm-hmm. and I have my friends that I'm going to live with and I'm going to carry on. And and because at one point I thought, you know, what she needs to move away from State College. I said she needs to move away and get away from there, but I've come to realize, like you know, where's she going to go? I mean, just like I left Pennsylvania, where's she going to go? And not people not recognize the last name Sandusky, and basically she stayed in the state college because all of her friends were there, that her support group and her 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 friends were there to be there with her and help her through things, and she basically has like I'm going to live my life and I don't I can't I can't change people the way they are, so I'm just going to live my life. And I, the, my respect and, and love for her strength has grown exponentially over those last 10 years because, you know, she's, she's a special woman that she's been able to carry on the way she has um, because a, a lesser person, you know, what, 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 we, what we as children have had to put up with in terms of how it's affected our lives, she's put up with 10 times worse. Yeah. I agree with all that. I just wish she would have uh, listened yeah. to me more. <laughs> I know. Um, I understand that. Um, all, right, all right. Let's talk, to you about, talk about your dad real quick. Um, 
I, I neglected to ask you a, a substantive question that's going to be about as awkward as it gets, but, you know, that's this case. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, EJ, uh, what was your reaction when you uh, found out about your father's medical records uh, and, and uh, not just that he has almost no testosterone, but effectively no testicles? Uh, you know, it's a little surprise. I mean, I, obviously, I didn't know my that that in detail my father's uh, um, health issues. Um, by the way, that's by the way I, part I, of the by the way, EJ. Part of the reason I ask you that is yeah. that that's actually uh, important information. Right, you're you're, I, you're, you're yeah. his son, and you yeah. had no idea, right? I, I had no idea. So I knew I, mean, I knew he had some health issues. I knew that he was, uh, you know, when he reached a certain age, he was taking testosterone um, uh, because he had because he had low testosterone, um, but not not in detail why or for what specifically or anything like that. In terms of the physical issues that they said, with his, in terms of his physical anatomy, I had, I had no idea any of that. And and I've obviously have showered with my father at the Penn State football facilities after working out there, and I don't ever remember this that being an issue. I mean, obviously, I don't stare at people like that. But I mean, and even my father. But I mean, I I had no idea. I, I you know I didn't I didn't have any idea. And but. I just, I just knew that he did have some some physical, right. you know, issues like any person that ages. Um, you know, when you get to you know over fifty and your body starts to break down, and that's all I right. basically really knew. You, you do you from a more, I mean, this is all serious, um, yeah. but a more serious perspective. You do obviously see the potential oh, yeah. evidentiary significance oh, yeah. of this. Uh, yeah, and and uh, and and can you? Uh, maybe this is the most important part of this. Can both of you um, understand or maybe even verify my explanation that I gave on the podcast for how it is that this never made it into trial? In other words, to refresh your recollection, that your mother goes down, gets the medical records, no one bothers to read them. Your mother has nothing to compare Jerry to physically. Jerry's shy about it. Amendola's overwhelmed. And it all falls through the cracks. Do, do you, can you see that scenario? Yeah, I can. I mean, I, obviously, my my parents. I knew my parents could have could not have children. I didn't know why. I didn't know if it was my my father or my mother. I did. They never shared why they couldn't physically why they just couldn't have children. Um, and and obviously, you know, when you go and you look back, obviously, to the Michael Jackson. You know, trial. There, there were descriptions of Michael Jackson's, uh, you know, uh, private parts, basically. And so, you know, but there wasn't any of that in my father's trial. There was none of that. Like, like you point out in the podcast, which you know, obviously, you can when I listen to your podcast and you speak about my parents. Sometimes it's not the easiest thing to listen to, but they, they basically you pointed out that, you know, um, that is something that. Would have been noticed had mm-hmm. had he have if if he was having anywhere remotely close to the sexual life that these kids were claiming for him to have had that right. had would have had to been known. Mm-hmm. Correct. And none of them said anything about it. Exactly. You've you've, you've put it uh, exceedingly uh, well, and and, and that's uh, we'll we'll 
put an, a, a period on that one. So the last question, um, I'm sure people want to know how your dad is doing now, and so it's a two-part question. Uh, well, John, he just tried calling me a little bit ago while we were on the phone. So. <laughs> he, he, he wanted to know how he, was, he said he was going to try to call me back to find out how this went today. So. Well, he's, he's doing, I think he's doing as well as can be expected. He speaks to his, EJ probably speaks to him once once or twice a week, maybe, depending uh, on. Once every other week or so. Yeah, you know, depending on what's going on, you know, if the, if, if the kids are around, maybe he talks a little bit more, but they, they speak frequently. And I think he's doing as well as can be expected. And, um, you know, he's not the most patient person in the world, so there's a lot of eagerness to move things forward. And But I I, th- I think he's doing well. I think he's yeah. under the circumstances. I think he's doing as well as he can be. Well, you know, Go ahead, Well, just, if I can add to that, you know, John, like I, I told you before, I mean, he, is, he was a very disciplined and rigid lifestyle that he had when he – um, when he was coaching, in terms of getting up at the same time, going to work out every day, you know, do, do, he did this this time, this at that time. He was very structured and very regimented. Um, and so, in terms of transitioning to life behind uh, in the prison system, he's able to adapt to living a very structured times, you know, schedule of life in terms of you do this at this time, this is at this time, and, and so on and so forth. But he's also, he's always been a very incredibly impatient individual. Like, you know, he, the type that he'd call you an hour later if you, if you hadn't gotten back to him to give an answer to a question that he wanted. So, you know, that part of prison has been obviously very difficult for him because the judicial system removes remarkably slow. And I've had to remind them many times, like, Dad, this is not even a marathon. This is an ultra marathon. And they, the, the, the state is completely vested into dragging this out and not resolving this in terms of his appeals. They do not want this to come back in the news. They do not want this to, you know, they, they shudder any time that there's an appeal because they just want this to go away. And to that point, and, and to be, um, you know, totally transparent, uh, the three of us had a, a conversation about this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, after bizarrely, um, uh, Jerry's a lawyer, Al Lindsay called me with his hair on fire. Uh, one of the issues currently uh, facing the, the defense team is that your dad is so uh, eager and so impatient to uh, get something going here that he continues to make petitions in state court, where, as you said, the entire system is invested against him which is effectively preventing his attorney from ever getting this into federal court where he might actually have a chance. So, um, and you, you very poignantly gave what I thought was a brilliant explanation psychologically for what's going on here, uh, which is that, that your dad, and I'm paraphrasing, you can, yeah. uh, but, you, but your dad uh, is afraid that if he goes into federal court and gets rejected, there's nothing left for him to live for. Is that, a, is that a fair assessment of what you think is going on here? In terms of, you know, nothing left to live for, but there's nothing else. There's, you know, what is the, he doesn't have another step. And so I think he, to a certain degree, he wants to make sure that he's exhausted every possible way to appeal or point of law to appeal in the state system before going to the federal, the federal route because there's nothing above the federal 
and and so I no, I, I think that he's a fighter and he wants to continue to fight, and so and he believes that he's right in terms of what occurred at the state level, and and like you said, he, he's going against a stacked deck because the the state is so invested in so many people in the Pennsylvania state pol- political and judicial system, they don't want this to rear tug glad. Too many people are going to have egg on their face, and so they're basically... Mm-hmm. Well, what can, what can, we, what can we do? Fake. What can we do to convince him that uh, the federal I, court is his only shot? Well, John, like I said, he's an incredibly stubborn individual, and, and he... And, and again, this is, it's, this is his life, and it's his decision in terms of the judicial process and i can have points of view but ultimately it's still going to be his decision so do am i maybe to a certain degree you know i i mean i can't tell him not to do try to appeal again at the state level because it's it's his life that's on that he's dealing with and trying to recover of it and, and i believe in it i have faith in him but at the same time i also know that it may be you know um running into a brick wall repeatedly because well, of what's going on in the state. But at the same time, it's it's his decision, and, and I, I don't want to be the person that tells and, – and again, and part of this is that when I was in the – you know, I, you know, I'm not a lawyer, and I can't basically tell him, like, Father, you know, you're doing that. Okay, well, well, let me – you know what, um, I, you know, since since we've gone through 10 years of this, uh, and at every step of the way I've told people what's going to happen – and uh, and they didn't believe me, and they just said, well, you know, maybe you're wrong, and uh, there's no level of urgency. Let me tell you what's going to happen, which will be the ultimate final injustice of all this insanity. Yeah. Uh, your dad is going to die in prison without ever getting a federal court hearing. And, uh, and a federal court is the only court that would have any shot of, of giving any semblance of justice, justice in this case. But you know what? Maybe in a weird way, that's that's... That ought to be the way this should end, since it's been a complete uh, freak show from the beginning. Uh, you know, and, and, and ironically, you know, maybe Jerry should have control over, over his own demise. Uh, 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 but that's what's going to happen. And, you, and I think you know it. And I think, I think Al Lindsay knows it. Um, and and it's just, it's, you know, I thought I'd lost the ability to be frustrated, but yeah. I'm telling you that's well, what's Well, I mean, I, obviously, John, it's, it's hard to hear that because, you know, you're, you're talking about the, my father's death, and that's tough for me to, to hear, but I understand, and it's a valid point that you have. Um, obviously, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that, you know, it's, it's this Sandusky hope and belief that we have that things are going to work out, but... And that eventually the, the 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 wrong will be righted, but at the same time, yeah, I understand that, and and I do basically, I, I there's part of me that does believe that you know his only hope is at the federal level, and at some point he's going to realize that that there is no other thing to do at the state. He's got to go to the federal level. Well, your your brother John tells me he's going to live to a hundred, so maybe there's more hope than I thought. So I, 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 I would. Uh, he, he's got great genes from his my my grandmother, his mother that. Um, strong, healthy genes in a lot of ways and stuff. So, yeah. Well, well EJ and Heather, I, I really want to thank you for your time, uh, for your honesty, for your courage. You did a great job. Uh, I very much appreciate it. Um, I absolve you of all your past sins. Uh, um, 
and uh, and and uh, obviously, let's keep in touch. Uh, but yeah. I, I I think that you you guys have uh, added a lot to the historical record. Uh, I'm glad that you guys have finally gone on the record and told the truth, and you should be proud of yourselves for doing that. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. And, and, and like I told you before, that, you know, um, as, for as much of the problems that or the butting of heads that you've had with my, my mom and, and my dad at different times, that, you know, uh, the family does appreciate all the hard work that you've put into this and basically being the the, the, the ultimate treasure trove of information on this subject and this, clerk, this case and, and that we do appreciate it. And even though maybe, you know, in terms of your method sometimes my mom may disagree with you and stuff like that we do appreciate how hard you've worked and, and and trying to get to the truth in this in this situation yeah and i just you know from the spouse looking in just i'm glad i i'm glad i made that outreach <laughs> a few weeks ago it's it's um it's been a long journey and i think the time was right for us to step forward for ej to step forward and tell his truth and for you to listen and you've allowed us a platform to be able to do that and moving forward I'm just really appreciative and thankful that the Sanduskis have someone like you in their lives to um, in, investigate and to look beyond sort of the narrative that's out there and go a little deeper to where other people are not willing to go because at the end of the day I just really want the truth out yeah Thanks, guys. Well done. Thank Thank you. you.